uh, HDMI on the on the actual M1X or you know M1 Pro or or Max um, that saves space li- further down. So now it's just connections instead of uh, connections to a sub assembly. So then you just run these tiny flex assemblies to the connectors and boom. So that that was what Shaheen and I were talking about, and then Shaheen just took us down this uh, encyclopedic knowledge of uh, the, pr- the processor. Um, so hopefully he'll pop in at some point and put us all to sleep. Yes, uh, yeah, Shaheen was fantastic. That was awesome. Um, and then, by the way, also Jonathan in the audience is also pretty savvy on the semiconductor front. And then I see a, a personal fleshy friend of mine from Stockholm who I mentioned in our last gathering seven hours ago. Mr. Patrick Walsh is on stage. And Patrick, I mentioned you because we were I literally said your name eight hours ago when we meet twice a day here. And in our last gathering, we were talking about Ireland and how they got uh, rolled out the red carpet for everybody all the big tech companies. And I said, how cool is that, that, you know, we have somebody like you who was intimately involved in precisely that. And now we're working together in Stockholm, um, you know, to raise, raise the profile of Stockholm and whatnot. And you're one of the coolest people I've ever had the pleasure to work with. And, uh, but you happen to be Irish and you were, you know, you were involved in that whole, um, I forget why we were talking about, does somebody recall what, why I was talking about Ireland rolling out the red carpet for just because Irish people are great, maybe. Yeah, that could, that yeah, could, yeah, that could be part of it too. <laughs> Irish people are awesome. Yeah. Where's Dave? Where's our? Where's our I friend? know. Where's Dave? So we've got two. We've got Patrick and Dave. You've got where's Aaron Dave? and Patrick. We've got two. Oh, sorry, Aaron too. I love that. Yeah, don't worry, hey, mate. Don't don't forget about me. Come on, I can't no, say I the can't number twenty three either. Where's Where's Patrick? I've got a great. I've got a great ten second Ireland story. I was basically learning how to drive because my wife and I were out there for a couple weeks for a job. Oh, that sounds like a funny story in itself. And I crashed into a a paper shredder truck (laughs) and um you know i'm like uh you know don't like to interrupt someone's day kind of guy so i'm like hey you know like i know you have to get going there's no damage to your car like you know you can get going he's like no you know i'm i'm fine you know at the end of the day if i whatever i don't pick up today is going to get picked up tomorrow can i buy you a coffee (laughs) you know and uh in america people would be like fuck man i'm late i got 10 more things to do you know thanks to you i'm going to be here another four hours and you know um, so just amazing, amazing hospitality. This is why I love grace. the Irish. Can I just tell everyone who's never been to Ireland, this is exactly what happens in an Irish pub. People just, we all just start going off on stories and having crack like that. So that's exactly what it's like, Aaron. Good man. Club, Clubhouse was made for us, right? This Clubhouse was made Irish for Irish people. Pub right here. This is Tyler's <laughs> Irish pub. Well, we could do a, an after hours <laughs> Irish pub. Yeah, we get uh, Dave McGinty in here we too. Could do it. It'd be fun. Yeah. There I'm, is a guy who hosts an Irish pub on Clubhouse every day. Brilliant. I'm you know just... that Tyler's mom is Irish? No, my dad is Irish. My you mother's Polish. Yeah. Right, yeah. Good point. So, what I'm were we talking have... about, brother? We were talking about I was, Ireland. I was and, talking uh, about you because <clears throat> I was mentioning how how Ireland with the we we're talking for some reason about tax rates in Europe, and I don't know why we got on that conversation, but your name came up in that anyway. So yeah, so I used to anyway. be a tax lawyer. Yeah, in in Peach. Ireland during that. Time. Yep. Yep. PTR. I'm just happy with the um, Guinness draft. Okay. <laughs> 
Ay, ay, ay. Okay. By the way, Guinness in Japan tastes like ass for some reason. I, I, no, you have to have the nama nama drugs. Trust me, I know. I'm a, I'm I'm the tap. Yeah, the I grew tap. up I grew up drinking Guinness, being half Irish and everything. So the yeah, Guinness is a Guinness is Guinness is amazing, especially the closer you get to Ireland. By the time you get to Ireland, Absolutely. holy shit, is that stuff amazing when you get there when you have it? Way better than the United States. No, it is. Sure. It is very important how you pour it. You need to have Cheryl, some foam on top. Cheryl, I'm telling you, I lived in Japan for many years. <laughs> I drank yeah, Guinness hundreds of times in Tokyo, and every time why. it tasted like a nasty asshole. That's what it tasted like you know every what? time. I used to, I used to bartend in New York City, and it does Maybe have to do with Tyler, I, I guess you went to Hop, right? You went Hop, right? No. Cheap Irish Hop, right? No, it's no. Irrelevant. All the Guinness Cheryl. outside of Ireland is crap. It's way overly carbonated in Japan. That's the problem. So, no, it's yummy. No, no, like no. It's not at all yummy. yummy. Not at all yummy. No. Yummy that, for me. That, that's exactly right. In Japan, Guinness is made in different ways. Than... Yeah, but yummy. Oishi desu. No, no, oishi kunai yo. It's oishi. It's very different. Than, yeah, it's different. You know, from... it's, very, in... it's very different. When you go, let me yeah. put it this way. When you go to Ireland, and if you're in the Temple Bar Gate area, where they, they literally get it directly in the pipes from the factory to the pubs. They don't even put Amen. it in fucking kegs. It comes wow. in the pipes to the pubs. When you're in that region right near the Guinness Brewery, holy shit, is that taste amazing. Oh, my God, that was amazing. <laughs> I remember that. For, yes. for, those, for those who are as, as lucky as me and Tyler who can go to the Temple Bar, I'm going to give you a life hack when it comes to Guinness. So, Cheryl, I love that you probably think that was a good Guinness, but I'm going to teach you a way to find a good Guinness. So, first thing, I think somebody said it here. I think it was you, Amy. The closer you get to the Guinness factory, the better the Guinness is. Yep. However, here's the other hack. If you are if you go into a pub and no one is drinking Guinness in the pub, then get well away from it because for the last six months. But if you go into a pub and loads of people are drinking Guinness, that means that it's been flowing quite well. So don't buy Guinness if you're the first person in the pub to buy it. Um, go somewhere where everyone else is drinking it and you'll get yourself a good pint. And make sure you watch the bartender when they pour it because the way they pour it as well is how it actually does make it taste even better. Please I... tell me there's hope. Please tell me there's a hilarious story of how someone's like tapped off of the underground pipes and the oh, of course you go I, go. They have a um a what do you call it a museum <laughs> at the brewery, and they have all they have all of that. Like there was people you know tapping all the pipes all the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Chris, 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 Chris. You know what? I I because of Guinness, I actually co-own a pub in Kyoto briefly, and I drink Guinness every time I visit them. We get it, Cheryl. You love your Guinness. Yes. I'm sure. Okay. I'm sure yes, it, tastes, yes, yes, yes. it tastes absolutely amazing in Japan. So, Wait, but is that four Irishmen on stage or three Irishmen on stage? Patrick, oh, yeah. let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me tell you if, if you have anything, any, any drinks in Kyoto, that's great because it's Kyoto. But if you're going to be drinking in Kyoto, you want to yeah. get some. Some legit nigiri, you know, some some real sake. Sake, yes, sake. Hey. Yeah, of course, of course, of course, real sake is great in Kyoto. But if you have really shit shitty beer in Kyoto, 
Yes. It tastes great. Yes. Because you get some asahi. Atmosphere get, makes the taste yes. different. You go to an itzakaya and drink some really light Japanese beer, some asahi dry, super dry. That works. That That's on a hot exactly. summer day. That's, that's right. I agree. I, 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 super, I, I, but Ken, Ken, you'll agree. It has to be super cold on a very hot day. You agree? Yes. Well, well, asahi super dry. Super cold and a very hot day is super. Yes. Yeah, my favorite is Ebis, but you know what? Tyler I mean, too. I like Ebis, too. To say. Yeah. 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 I, 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 I agree. Ebis is very good. That's my favorite. When it's not very yeah, hot too. day. That's right. Not, on a, on a yeah, regular day. Not what about extremely cold, yes. like served oh, I, in, you know, yes. UK or... Yeah. yeah. Sapporo, too. That's I, 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 when I drink sushi, I like Sapporo, so... You let's stop this, you know, stupid. No, let's keep going. How do you say nasty asshole in Japanese? In Japanese. Get the clips out. Mazui, <laughs> what would be the the best slang version? Mazui, not not Mazui. Mazui, Mazui is real bad. Yeah, yeah. But I think what Ken is really trying to say is, any beer in Japan tastes better than the U.S. Budweiser. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tyler would argue, Cheryl. He thinks that uh, Guinness is Budweiser. Yeah. Okay. Let's. We'll leave it on that terrible uh, flat joke, and we'll go into rim shot. Rim shot here. Uh, the MacBook Pros just were announced, and now they've taken out the Touch Bar, and they they fixed them all up. And boy, they're super fast. That's which is super cool. And we'll get some more. You know, people will start reviewing them in the next couple of days, and we'll get to see those, and get to see just really how fast they are when they get all the benchmarks in and everything. And now there's a new article on this issue of Apple and their new devices they just announced, which is that Apple confirms it's a 140-watt charging brick bundled with the 16-inch MacBook Pro, uses a USB-C PD 3.1 standard, and is the first gallium nitrate charger. So the, the, the thing requires a whole lot of juice, 140-watt charging brick through USB-C. So this is a kind of interesting tech that they have to power the new supercharged MacBook Pro 16-inch with uh, those super new processors. Okay, okay, and then what else do we got here? The next biggest story. How is the 16-inch with 2 terabytes is enough for normal people? Yes, 2 terabytes is plenty for normal people, yes. Okay. Uh, unless you're, if, if you're doing video editing and here's the problem is the newest iPhone. If you have the newest iPhone, it does yeah, pro res recording. And if you're doing pro res, then two terabyte might not be enough actually, but it's yeah, taking up a lot of space. Yeah. If, and that really only applies if you're using the, the new pro, you know, uh, file format in the new, uh, newest iPhone 13, then you'll need a lot of space. Next up is Mac OS Monterey release candidate reintroduces Safari's old tab design and blah, blah, blah. So the new operating system, Monterey, is also coming out in the next few days, almost certainly before the MacBook Pros arrive 
next week so that they will come pre-installed with Mac OS Monterey. The next one is Nikkei Japan S- says that they have sources. That means they've got leaks too. Shit. That Google has asked Pixel 6 suppliers. That means people supplying parts for the Pixel 6, like Qualcomm and Broadcom and Toshiba and everyone who and Samsung, everyone who makes all the chips and the glass and all that shit for the phones, to produce over 7 million units, double its entire estimated smartphone shipments last year. So they are expecting a blockbuster demand for the Pixel 6. And guess what? The Pixel 6 launch event live from Google HQ starts in just less than three hours from now. And we will watch that live stream and that Pixel 6 event. And I suspect as well that this will be the breakthrough year for the Pixel phone because this is the first time they've got their own system on a chip architecture to take full advantage of the deep, deep investments in R&D they've done into AI which that's their bread and butter. They're an AI company, you could say, in fact. I and, predict the Pixel will go nowhere, but that's going to take a bet, Tyler. Yeah, I think it's going to sell like hotcakes. It depends on the price, yeah. but I think the func- they're going to be able to add new functionality that's going to make people start to turn away from the iPhone. I think- I'm with Tyler on this. Take that I bet. think Tyler's correct. I think the, the system on a chip architecture with Google Assistant will enable new functionality and features of Google Assistant that do not exist in any other device. I, I agree, but I also agree that I, I believe their market share will be unchanged in one year from now. Thanks. Okay. But, but where are you based? Come on with that. Are you in America? I'm, I'm basing on they have just don't have the reach when it comes to global mobile telephony versus the giants. And that's never changed. Ten years they've been trying to crack the code and they haven't yet on smartphones. I think I'm a Tyler on this one, actually. And um, the reason I think that is because the thing that impresses me most about Apple is that they, they control both the hardware and the software on their device. And actually, I was a big fan of the Microsoft Lumia devices for that same reason, that it was the, it was the, the hardware and software was, was run by the same organization. I think this is where Samsung lets itself down. And I think this is where Google, whenever they bought over Motorola handsets, that they would um, get their shit together. And it hasn't really happened for them, but I think this may be the, I think this could be it. Because whenever Android came out, I thought this is not going to do much. You know, what is, what is Google going to do with, with that? And obviously they, they, own, they own the market share by a long stretch. And I think they have the reach on the software. And if the hardware can back it up, then they can, um, they can make it happen. That, that's my thought. And, and I'm excited for this actually. And I've never bought a Pixel. Yeah, that, that's that's the point. I mean, we, we, it's exciting, but are you going to buy that 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 device? And you know, if you want to succeed in mobile, you got to have a family of flagship products and low end, medium, high end. You need all the carrier relationships. They just never crack the code, but it'll be fun to watch. It, it would be the first time that I'd be tempted to buy it. Actually, honestly, I, w- I would be tempted for sure. Well, a bunch of my friends and we all bought i13 and we are underwhelmed greatly and already looking forward to 14 and uh, Google is, I don't know, maybe catching up, but iPhone is not doing a bunch of uh, invention or new tech kind of stuff. So they are kind of lagging behind, in my opinion. Oh, I agree. Yeah, but they continue to, you know, kill it when well, it comes to like you, numbers. You, you, could be, you could be right, Evan, in that. They're only saying 7 million units. 
is you know that they're telling the suppliers to be ready for which is double what they did before that's still peanuts yeah how many probably sells that in a day right (laughs) yeah so that's still peanuts but samsung probably sells that in a minute yeah that's the thing and i would i would rather be on an and because i use android i would rather use an android device which is all the way through like i would rather have the same uh, hardware and software sort of merge together the way that Apple does it. For me, it's just that Apple have always been underwhelming when it comes to phones. And I have only ever used iPhone when I've been given one with work. And even at that, I've still always used an Android device as my daily driver because it's a superior product. I, I'm using, I think it's the Note 21 at the moment or Note 20 um, Samsung, which is the, the, the flagship. And it's a, it's a way superior device than um, than any of the iPhones that's in the market. If iPhone ever trumped it and made something better, I would go, I would jump to what was best. But I'm always looking for what is best, and I I think hopefully Google are getting the shit together now, and their hardware and software can come together and provide a real premium device. Um, and for me, the I'm not press sensitive when it comes to phones because no matter how much it costs. It's still cheap for me because I use it for everything from running to meditation to, to meetings to business. Like I use it for everything. So e- even if it was $10,000, it would still be, I would still get my value out of it over the space of a year. Oh, yeah. This, this, no doubt, this is going to be a geek's phone. I mean, it's going to be a wonderful, geeky product, but that doesn't change their position in the market. You know, Apple's, Apple's a set. The ease of having your AirPods, your phone. Your watch, your big, you know, it's the, ecosystem. Laptop you know, Apple, and everything. Uh, you know, Google hasn't built that ecosystem of all the devices. That's Apple's a, what I call a center mass company, meaning they're really aiming for mm-hmm. the center mass. And you know, with the change in the ad infrastructure and the the tracking, you know, that, Apple's going heavy, heavy on ad ads and their yeah. new ecosystem. But, so. but I'll I'll debate this point with you, Evan. That. Apple does very well on the personal hardware ecosystem. Google focuses more on embedding Google Assistant into all the car companies, for example, uh, the TVs, for example, uh, other devices, yeah. right? And, and iOS, the best developer on iOS is is Google. I mean, look at Google Maps, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, but and, what I mean the is, other... it, it, the, yeah. in the same way that Apple uses its AirPods and its watches to try and capture market share and, and entice people over to the Apple ecosystem, and it works brilliantly, <clears throat> they're attracting people over with hardware. Google's doing kind of a, 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 a different strategy where they're using their Google Assistant is starting to uh, gain in in the foot race against Siri. And I think that's what we're going to see in this event three hours from now. They're going to showcase Google Assistant in a new way with that it's going to have new functionality due to the system. Yeah, and I hope I, I hope they port that to iOS so I can use Google Assistant. Yeah, because iOS. honestly, as awesome. a as a dedicated Apple user on almost all my products, I, ha- I use phone and laptop, but I for my home speakers, I do use Google Home and Google Assistant enabled devices, because when I'm doing smart home stuff, like turn the lights off this, turn the lights on that, and blah, 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 for me, the the Google Assistant ecosystem is better uh, across all the other hardware manufacturers, like the lights and the uh, et cetera. So, yeah. And then, Siri is terrible in that realm. I have you right. Know, that's my point. They also bought guy, but it is terrible. They also <laughs> bought Nest and the thermostats and the cameras, and that's where Apple's notably. It would be it would be fantastic if Apple got into 
the cameras and the thermostats and you know but they they're so focused on controlling everything um I, i'm not I, I don't expect it'll come anytime soon so anyway the next one is that it is apple debuts third generation airpods with updated design better sound quality spatial audio and apple music and magsafe enabled case available next week it's a to me, it looks very similar to the AirPod Pros, but without the annoying little thing in your ear. Well, that little thing is not annoying for me. That's comfortable. Mm, I, I, I don't I don't like the sensation of being blocked out like that. So but if you yeah. keep it in your ear, it's not falling out just like my older one. I lost True. three of them, but this True. one is staying. So then we get into the next one, and here's where things get a little bit spicy. So the next one is, and by the way, for those who don't know, I, this daily list that I have is uh, not of my own making. I read the literally top down based on, you know, most popular to least popular. It's a, it's not my source. It's a, it's an external source, which Cheryl somehow found out or somebody to, told Cheryl the source and, and I've, I've not shared it. So somebody figured it out. So I, I think I'm going to figure out who, who told you Cheryl. So be careful. So it says, now watch this. Let's unpack this slowly. The next one is from Vice. And the headline says, Facebook posts an odd thread, meaning a Twitter thread, attacking 30 unnamed journalists. Okay, now let's see if, if Facebook is actually attacking journalists in their Twitter thread. Hold that thought in your head. That's that's claim number one. There's a claim by Vice that Facebook is attacking 30 unnamed journalists. Okay, let's see if that ends up to be true. You decide for yourself. Well, let's let's read it and you see. And then f- attacking 30 plus unnamed journalists, quote unquote, finishing up a coordinated series of articles based on thousands of pages of leaked documents. Okay, now, so now here's the Twitter thread. Now, it's not that long of a thread. It's only one, two, three, four, five tweets. And let's see if Facebook's attacking these 30 journalists. Here's... Tweet number one of the five. We expect the press to hold us accountable, given our scale and role in the world. But when reporting misrepresents our actions and motivations, we believe we should correct the record. Number two, over the last six weeks, including over the weekend, we've seen how documents can be mischaracterized. Obviously, not every employee at Facebook is an executive. Not every opinion is the company's position. Obviously, there's a whole lot of documents in in the whole Facebook ecosystem. You've got 100,000 employees all having multiple meetings a day, all preparing documents for all those meetings. Everything written in all of those documents are not the official statements of Facebook. Those are the employees debating shit internally, much of which could be jackass buffoonery. And yet those documents get leaked and journalists cherry pick out some of that choice grade A USDA choice jackass buffoonery and then position it as Facebook says XYZ because Bobby the janitor said something stupid in a meeting three years ago. That's what's happening. And that's why Facebook had to write this Twitter thread. And then uh, tweet number three, right now, 30 plus journalists are finishing up a coordinated series of articles based on thousands of pages of leaked documents. We hear that to get the docs out outlets, meaning publishers, 
had to agree to conditions and a schedule laid down by the PR team that worked on the earlier leaked docs, which means the Wall Street Journal, who that's who the, the team who worked on the earlier leaked docs. And what they're doing now and what Facebook is saying is they've become aware that the Wall Street Journal is now inviting in all of their journalistic friends to join in a jihad against Facebook. Right. And to do that, they must use this technique called a, a embargo, which simply means we're all agreeing to the minute and date and time which we will attack. So we're, no one's going to jump ahead. We're all going to release simultaneously, usually uh, at the top of the hour on some set day and time, noon, New York's time, you know, or, or 9 a.m. Pacific, you know, October 28th. No one goes one minute early. If you jump the gun, then you lose a whole lot of trust from your journalistic friends. This is called doing an embargo. This happens all the time in the tech game, all the time. The majority of press articles in the tech world are use this methodology. So this is no big deal. This happens out countless times a day. So, yeah, so Facebook is saying, ah, we now have heard that they're working on this big campaign, 30 different journalists. And the Wall Street Journal is now inviting in all of their friendly competitors who compete. And why would they do that? Well, that's an interesting question because it's no longer about, uh, you know, killing the, uh, capturing the zebra and eating it all yourself. You're willing to split it up amongst 30 other journalists because it's not, this is not about money. This is about revenge. This is about attack. This is about inflicting as much damage as possible to your bigger shared mutual opponent because all of these journalists publications are all losing in the ad revenue battle to facebook this is the arch enemy this is the king of the jungle and so they're all uniting to inflict as much possible damage the the jackals and hyenas are all going to get together and take down the water buffalo So, tw- the, the last tweet, the curated selection out of millions of documents at Facebook can in no way be used to draw fair conclusions about us at Facebook. Internally, we share work in progress, which is unfinished, and debate options, totally uh, unformed opinions in all of these documents that are not the official statements of Facebook. Not every suggestion stands up to the scrutiny we we must apply to decisions affecting so many people. Last tweet. To to those news organizations who would like to move beyond an orchestrated gotcha campaign, we are ready to engage on the substance. John Panette, VP of Communications. End of tweet stream. End of tweet stream. Now, did John Panette, VP of Communications, did he just attack 30 journalists? as Vice says in their headline? No, he didn't. So what the fuck's going on, Vice? You just told me fa- Facebook posts an odd thread. No, there ain't nothing odd about that thread at all. That thread is many things, but odd is not one of them. There's nothing odd about that thread. Facebook posts an odd thread attacking 30 unnamed journalists. Huh? What thread did you read, Vice? I just read the thread. We all just read the thread. Does anyone on this stage think that Facebook just attacked these journalists? Uh, I think I think the thread certainly tries to reframe the argument 
So the journalists are trying to, uh, I believe, present facts that were presented within Facebook. And so the argument really is about are the facts, are, are, are they real? I mean, is the data that's being right. presented, is that a true reflection right. of Jonathan, the impact he, that it has? Great. I think what Facebook would that's like, right. certainly these freaks are like, these are opinions. Right. These aren't facts. Well, but actually, I don't care how many presentations have been released within Facebook. Some of them might be Looney Tunes. But if there are facts in there that are accurate and a true representation of the damage Facebook does, then yes, I want to know about it. Right. And what if you were a journalist at a, at a prestigious publication who's built their reputation over centuries on legitimate journalism, when presented with documents about a company, you would then reach out to the company and say, hey, somebody just leaked some documents from within your organization who may not even work that, at the company. I agree with you. That, that Tyler, so checking your, your source and checking your facts. But also, I, I haven't really seen Facebook engaging in a way of trying to refute individual facts. What they want to do is they want to present another presentation with their own interpretation of the facts. Facts are facts. Numbers are numbers. Yeah. So I think, I think it, look, there's, there's, there's sort of, you know, wrongs and rights on both sides. But having all of this information, if you like this dirty washing, out so we can all look at it and hopefully yep. not be too swayed by by the press, but form our own opinions right. as to whether you know Facebook or other social media companies um, have a positive or negative impact on our lives. Um, I, I think that's very important, important, and I think it's necessary. Right. So the, my my point I'm trying to make essentially is. I, I would hope that they stay true to the journalistic uh, pedigree and uh, heredity that they were founded on and built on and engage with Facebook when they find documents. In the case of Frances Hagen, she, the, the one interesting document that came out thus far was the slide about a survey, a very non-scientific survey, mind you, uh, yeah. of of how Instagram users feel Instagram affecting them. And the Wall Street Journal published not the document itself, but one of the data points on the on one slide of the document, which because the Wall Street Journal didn't publish the document in their piece, Facebook said, oh, you must be talking about this page of this document. And we would love to explain this entire document so you understand the full content. It was actually Facebook who published the document, not the Wall Street Journal, because the the facts supported Facebook when you look took the document as a whole in the whole context, and and counter the rest of the data points on that document countered the narrative that the Wall Street Journal was pushing in their journalistic jihad. Which was in, in in your mind, Tyler? What 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 was what was the balance there? That actually, a young girl having a negative um, image of herself, or or, or in, in that 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 sort of, if you like, counterbalanced by 
other young people feeling better about themselves? Yeah, to be very I specific. Mean, is, is, is that what we're talking about here? Because, well, I can you tell know, you exactly I mean, what we're talking I can just We just need to look at the slide, which we did do uh, previously. And they asked young guys and young girls separately. And then of the young lady, all the guys said, they asked them about seven, ten, ten on each side. There was, they asked ten questions to guys, ten, the same ten questions to girls. And they said, does Instagram make you feel better or worse or uh, somewhere between, no change, better or worse about yourself with regard to uh, your fin financial well-being? Both sides, men and young guys and girls, both said, makes me feel better. Okay. Does it make you feel better or worse or neutral about your self-image as it relates to your family stress? Makes them both feel better. Okay, great. How about this and this and that? They went through 10 on each side. Nine out of all the guys, it made they claim the guys who answered the survey yeah, said. But, but Tyler, Tyler, it, yes. I'm sorry to pull you up on this. They, yes. Those are like meaningless metrics. No, not Do at I all. I feel better about my own financial and family circumstances right. because I use social media. Right. Does social media make me feel alone? Does social yes, media that's what they asked. Does it make you feel alone? And the girl it. said, no, these, it makes these, me feel better about Tyler, my, these, about loneliness. But Tyler, these are far more, these are far more emotional questions. Okay. And we're getting answers that are, are giving us a huge emotional response. You know, I don't think children, you know, uh, does social media uh, make you feel bad about the car you drive? Does social media mean that you should buy Levi as opposed to Lee jeans? They're fucking meaningless. You know, what's important here is, do you come out with this negative self-image? I, I have two daughters, and I'm very well, you're, worried you're about mis You're, you're fundamentally un misunderstanding what's going on here, Jonathan. The, the 10 questions that they asked the girls were, does it make you feel better or worse about yourself in these 10 categories? Your body image, your financial well-being, your st overall stress, your family life, your friend's life. Nine of the 10, the girl said, it makes me feel better about myself. Yes, but what are the questions? If the questions I just told you what the questions were, Jonathan. Would you like me to repeat them? So, so which, so which is the question where they feel negative about themselves? Body self, specifically only one. Exactly. Body which has the most self -image. emotional impact on a young girl, Tyler. Not the financial element. That, that's fine. I have no problem with how that. How they looked and how they are perceived. So, Jonathan. So, you as a journalist see this slide that the girl. All by the way, all the young boys. All said, all 10, I feel better about myself by using Instagram. My own self-image on all 10 out of 10, I feel better. The young girls, 9 out of 10, their own self-image, they feel better. On one of the 10. Boy, I can only speak for myself when I was a young boy. If someone said, hey, you're ugly or you have spots, or you had, it didn't have, I, I imagine, uh, certainly I can see from my daughters as much an impact as if someone says the same thing to my daughter. So I, 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 don't, I don't see this information. Again, it's about changing the context. Oh yeah, you know, overall we ask like a thousand questions, most of them fucking meaningless to your emotional well-being. And 99 or 999 of them basically said, hey, we are a positive influence in people's lives. But the one that actually has real meaning, yeah, you know, actually we are a detriment. Come on, Tyler, man. No, come on, Jonathan. All, all 10 that they asked the guys, so all guys said it makes them feel, Instagram makes them feel better about their self-image on finance, fam their physical health, 
their family well-being, how their work life, their friendships, all of them. The girls also, all of them with one exception. How it make their own body self-image. Now, here's the important part. Should we ask a lady? Because we're both not ladies. Why don't we ask the ladies? No, you're missing. You're fundamentally yeah. missing About the point, Jonathan. Jonathan, you're fundamentally missing the point here. The point is, the journalist saw that slide that we're talking about. And instead of saying, hey, Facebook did a survey to find out how their young users feel about themselves as a result of using Instagram. Instead of mentioning, as a journalist would do, we saw the slide and out of all young guys feel better about themselves and the young girls, out of nine out of 10 issues about how they feel about themselves, Instagram makes them feel better. And in the one case of body self-image, they felt less. They didn't do this, Jonathan. They didn't include uh, all of what I just told you. They wrote the headline. What is Instagram? What is Instagram? It's about images. It's predominantly about images of yourself. I hardly see any images about banks. Doesn't really matter. Again, you're going off the track here. The point is the journalist didn't do journalism. The journalist did activism. The journalist took the one data point. There's 10 data points on each side. There's a total of so 20 Carter, data I points. I agreed with you there that, that I, I agree that there needs to be some balance here. But I'm saying we, we're moving into a very dangerous world where Facebook will provide context by asking a load of meaningless questions in order to provide balance to their argument. Yes, we are have a slightly negative impact on body, you know, on self-worth and body image. But hey, look at all these other metrics that we recorded. It's meaningless. It's meaningless background. Well, noise. you could say all 10 on and, each side are meaningless. A, from a father's you can't... perspective with two daughters, I don't care about that because it's an emotional thing for me to see how driven my daughters are by the images here, that they here see. Are the, here are the 10. see perfect images that don't reflect reality. Here's the 10 that they asked. Did that make you feel, made it worse, made it better, or no impact? Uh, family stress, financial stress, sadness, anxiety, loneliness, sleep issues, eating issues, social comparison, fear of missing out, body image, and problematic use. And it makes them feel better about their family stress, their financial stress, their sadness, their anxiety, their loneliness, their sleep issues, their eating issues, their social comparison, their problematic use, their fear of missing out, but not their body image. Okay, surely, surely if you feel bad about your body image, that translates potentially into eating disorders. No, no, because <laughs> so one of the questions was eating issues, Jonathan. One of the other questions I ask is eating issues. It makes them feel better about their eating issues. I, I'm sorry, Tyler. I mean, maybe this is sort of an emotional response for me, but I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. To, to, to be honest, it's certainly, it's certainly not a logical response from you. And I see... I see how we are driven by no one takes a fucking picture when they're crying. Very few. Yeah. We all take the pictures when we're on a private plane or we've just had our hair done or we look absolutely fabulous. My friend, you're rambling. Here's the point. You're getting off them. the point again. The, the, the Facebook data that they're cherry picking from specifically shows in the chart that in the survey, Young ladies feel better after using Instagram as it relates to sadness, anxiety, loneliness, sleep issues, eating issues, fear of missing out, problematic social comparison, but not body image. 
And they ignored all of that and just ran the headline, Facebook knows that its user, Instagram users have is leading to body negative self-image, mentioning not at all, zero, not even once, any of the other nine things that they responded that it actually improves for them. Tyler. Is that journalism, Jonathan? Body, body negative body self -inch. Yes. You know, I'm sorry if I if I had a, um, a, 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 a negative image of myself, I would be conscious about the way I look, the way I ate, um, who saw me, what environment I was seen in. I mean, a, a, again, all of these these points are sort of contradictory. And I, I, I get what you're saying. I, I understand the piece around about sort of negative reporting from the press and a feeding frenzy and, you know, Facebook's the enemy. But I, I just, we, we don't get a representation of reality through social media. What we get is we get, you know, a, a, a representation of how we want the world. I don't care. That's not my point. My point is journalists are on a jihad and they don't care about the facts, as you said. You hear this? That's the Wall Street Journal Jihad going on over there. They got the Wall Street Journal Jihad. We're going to go, let's go kill the infidels over at Facebook. That's what's going on, Jonathan. That's the fucking point, my friend. Time's up. Time's up. Take a deep breath. Let's move on to the next topic. They're on a journalistic jihad. They Tyler. don't care about the facts. Facebook had to show the slide. Facebook showed the slide. They couldn't. Why couldn't they? Because the slide counteracts the the false narrative they're trying to create. That's why they couldn't show the slide. They would have loved to show them the slide, but they couldn't because they were intentionally removing the bulk of the context of the slide because they were cherry picking the data. That's why the Wall Street Journal couldn't show the slide. And that's why Facebook themselves were very happy to show the slide because the data on the slide, the data, Jonathan, that you're so fond of, the facts, Jonathan, that you're so fond of, are on Facebook's side. That's why they were happy to show the facts and the Wall Street Journal was intentionally trying to remove, redact no, the facts. The fact the I facts. Look at, Tyler, is about sort of, you know, uh, self-worth and body image. So if the That's facts are so much at, on the side of the Wall Street Journal, why couldn't yeah, they yeah. show the slide, Jonathan? Uh, and, okay, okay, maybe. But that is disastrous. It's indicting in its own right. Okay? And, it, and turn, and, and it turns out it's narrative. not. We, we, it we turns out it's not at all. It turns out it's not at all because narrative. the people who did this survey know diddly nothing about the psychology of surveys and the science of surveys. NPR itself did a piece highlighting yeah. how unscientific right. and how meaningless a right. survey so is you when you ask a user to express as how as they think they something makes them feel. It's utterly unscientific and it means scientifically Tyler, fucking zero. number of clinical psychologists on its payroll. Why? Because they want to make the most addictive. It, it could be. Um, but the person who did, here's the point, that. Jonathan, the person who did this survey is not a clinical psychologist and, and is not a researcher and knows and nothing about how to collect research. From, Tyler? Where did they get the data from? They, the data they did a survey of their users and the users okay. responded to the survey. And then Sally from the, so the team. Data. Okay. Yeah, it's data. It's a survey. They sent out a survey. The people responded to the survey. The person hey, still, who, who's not a researcher data. made a it's slide and shared it in a meeting. But the real question, Tyler, who benefits from this narrative of the Wall Street Journal? The Wall Street Journal. Or a competitor. True. 
Yeah, no one's talking. But about Wall Street Journal is a competitor. Really They're competing with Facebook for ad yeah. dollars. There's, okay. Yeah. Yes. Competitors are benefiting from this. And this is the other problem, is the Wall Street Journal is not, as they should be doing, as a direct competitor with Facebook for ad dollars. That's their main revenue stream, is directly competitive with Facebook. They're not saying, by the way, in full transparency, we're a direct competitors with this company that we have this jihad against. And more importantly, they didn't do the thing that you agree they should have done, which is call up Facebook and say, hey, somebody sent us a document from Instagram who doesn't even fucking work at Instagram. And we're not sure exactly what we're looking at. We think we understand it. Could you please help make a comment? We'd like you to, we're going to publish this tomorrow. Could you please make a comment about this? That's journalism. That's what they were taught to do. They didn't do that. And the tweet thread that the Facebook's head of VP of communications put out where he says to those news organizations who would like to move beyond an orchestrated gotcha campaign, we are ready to engage on the substance. And he's saying that knowing they're not going to reach out to him because they're not interested in doing journalism. They're on a fucking journalistic jihad. They're trying to fucking kill the infidels over at Facebook. They have, this has nothing to do with journalism whatsoever. It's the wall street jihad. That's the point, Jonathan. You get it now? Tyler. Do you get it now? But the point is this as well. Journalism has become activism, and that's not what their training set them up for. And Tyler, I'm with you on it. Within reason. I mean, yes, I, I get that there are people who have, you know, very pointed angle. Um, and then I have friends that I've known for decades who have um, who are completely <laughs> committed to doing journalism the right way. You know, they've been embedded with, you know, in the most dangerous of situations in the middle of, you know, horrific um, conditions simply to bring us the news. So I, I, I really I'm not a journalist, but I think we need to kind of chill out, you know, in characterizing an entire profession as being somehow unethical. Yes, there are people that kind of go off and they do their own thing and they have agendas, but I can, I would love to invite some of my journalist friends to this stage so that you really, really see the commitment that they have to bringing an objective point of view to the, to the work that they do. Okay, we've got uh, how how we so whether it's sort of reporting right or wrong whether reporters are ganging up we're just focusing now on reporters ganging up against facebook but actually not on the data and that one data point about sort of self-worth self-image it, it's a disaster that's a disaster self-body image where, yes that self-body image Jesus, I mean, I, I don't know. Again, ladies, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I imagine that's one of the most important things, you know, for a woman, how she views but, herself. But, but John, that's, yeah, but that's totally that's irrelevant. self-body image is also being affected by magazines, by TV shows, by so many other things. And yeah, Tyler. Bar uh, this goes back know, to Barbies. But, but John, yes, I, I agree. John, this is this is pervasive through all of our media. But John, two wrongs don't make it right. But Jonathan, you know you, I mean? you, you have to. I, I don't want to have to read you the NPR article from the psychologist, the research psychologist, who clearly says asking a young lady what she thinks Instagram makes her feels means nothing. 
that data point means nothing that they responded to say that they think Instagram makes them feel worse about Holy it. Holy shit. Then what do the other data points mean, Tyler? They also, Jonathan, that's a very easy to answer. They also mean nothing. That's what the NPR interview with the professional psychological researcher says. So why didn't the journalist do the proper work to make that point out? Well, because that doesn't fit their, their jihad narrative against Facebook. That that shit means it's useless. Can we bring up Dr. Fran? She's a PhD from NYU in psychiatric occupational therapy. Sure. So I think and why is it just Facebook that is like the, the target here always? Yeah, I mean, you would target TikTok if you were really concerned about your children. Yeah, no, I agree with yeah, that. And, that sentiment, I and, then, and then the other part, Jonathan. Because I, I, TikTok I is not an ad network that's competing with the Wall exactly. Street Journal. I have, I have three very Barney's. young children. I'm, I'm intimately all the concerned other, with this. You know, <laughs> Tyler, I have two daughters and a PhD in communications, and I taught college journalism. There is an entire, and this is a very complicated issue, and you two guys have oversimplified it almost unbelievably. Uh, For one thing, uh, there is something that happens to women, girls at age 14, which ha- there's a whole book called Reviving Ophelia written about how to raise adolescent girls because of body image issues that are baked into the culture from way before Instagram so that these girls have these problems it when a girl gets into gets up to the age of about 14 they quit raising their hands in class they quit trying to look smart because they uh-huh. think that boy boys won't love them if they look smart so that's one thing from that book the the other thing that happens is of course that they want to look attractive this is all way before Instagram. And we can argue and argue whether Instagram makes it worse or doesn't make it worse. We don't know. But, but we, I presented the well, same it, it argument last Instagram time. Instagram by thousands of years. Right. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Body image issues are inherently associated with the growth. Right. But, but would you, Dogs, Francine, and others, I mean, women, here on on in the channel uh, would would you agree that sort of body image is 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 a very important thing for uh well for all of us but it's major sort of it's major i'm i'm 80 and i still have body image issues and mostly you know it's it's many more uh, women than men but Body image is major, and there have been there's so many studies on it. But uh, I mean, arguing whether the Wall Street Journal now I'm going to give you the journalism piece. Arguing whether the Wall Street Journal is is activist or not is an argument that the the profession of journalism is having now because for years in journalism schools we taught um, there's this one side. And then there's this other side. And we were taught to uh, be objectives and do one side and then the other side. Well, then what has happened is things have changed to the point where in the United States, one, one side 
is putting out misinformation. And if journalists don't correct it, no one will. So, so that's a whole other, that's a whole other question, you know, and it, and it's a too big a question, I think for this room, because there have to be journalists in the room and there have to be psychologists in the room. This would be a very interesting conference to have on, you know, women's body image in the age of social media, but, but it's a multidisciplinary and it kind of made me laugh, Tyler, and you know, I love you, but it kind of made me laugh to see two men discussing it and, <laughs> and no, no women even getting a word in edgewise. I, you know, it's, it was pretty- do with body self-image. My argument has to do with the uh, atrocious lack of journalism being applied in this jihad that the Wall Street Journal has against Facebook. It, and by the way, the, they did it a few days later on a separate, very sim, and they re they did the exact same jihad strategy of journalistic terrorism on a totally separate issue just three days ago, where they said they chose another. One little tiny little section of a much bigger page in a much bigger document about 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 hate speech. The next one, hold on. Don't object. But I still have to point out, I don't really care about the journalistic arguments. Be honest. Well, that's what we're talking about here, Jonathan. So if you don't want to if you don't want to talk about that, you need to go back to the audience, buddy, because that's what the conversation's about here. So the the point, the next article that they did in their jihad was that the AIs are only removing three to five percent of the hate speech on Facebook. That's the second article they came out with it in a very similar way. And it was the exact same strategy. And Facebook had to come out again on this happened on Sunday. So today's Tuesday. So 48 hours ago, Wall Street Journal goes new document. Here it is. Facebook's AI is only removing 3 to 5% of hate speech on Facebook. That's the big and headline. That is, an issue, that is an issue related to the business model of journalism right now. Well, here's the problem. Because journalists we, are being forced to become activists because that's what gets the click. But here's the problem. It, that's right. the problem. That, you're right. The problem is by doing that, by making the headline that Facebook's only... A, the AI is only removing three to five percent of hate speech. Facebook very quickly responded and says, "Ah, we see what you're doing now. You're taking tiny little comments by uh, some tiny person at our company whose opinions we totally disagree with, by the way. And that three to five percent that the, this somebody in the you know that one small team of that they're removing three to five percent of hate speech implies that they're not removing." 95% of hate speech. And Facebook says that's totally mischaracterizing what's happening. We remove 99.95% of hate speech on Facebook, but we don't use AI to do it. We have dozens of tools for removing hate speech on Facebook. AI is not our main tool for removing hate speech on Facebook. So when you, the Wall Street Journal, take something out of context that you know nothing about and you don't reach out to us and ask us, hey, what's the real context here? We see this data point where this AI person says, you're only removing that AI is only able to remove three to five percent of hate speech on Facebook. We say 
Who cares? We're not really dependent on AI and removing it. We have lots of other tools. It's a non-issue. There's not a whole lot of hate speech on Facebook. Facebook's had tons of issues. Hate speech isn't really one of them. There's a lot of people leaving Facebook. Hate speech is not the reason people are leaving Facebook. So, journalists, when you go out and you write these hit pieces based on misunderstandings of how these tools and how these slides operate within our Facebook ecosystem, you're, mis you're misinforming the populace and your readers into thinking that we're not removing hate speech on Facebook. And you're in misinforming them to think that we're causing young ladies to have a negative body self-image. Well, let's, let's figure out how, I, I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying that we have to figure out how to fix this. And to me, how to fix it as a person who's been a communications professional right. all her life, it, to, to my mind, the way you fix it is by better communication on Facebook's part. Right. And that's and right. That is that is something I have accused them of from the get go. Right. So but uh, this this discussion has. <laughs> so who warned me? Who, out. So who's. <laughs> Do you have a gong or so some cool. sort of Zen sound effect? I think we all need to take three deep breaths. <laughs> I can no, 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 no. That's like a take a deep out. breath through your nose and exhale through your mouth. <laughs> breathe. I drink some water, Tyler. Totally, Cheryl. Totally. We just need to breathe. Deeply and remember that it's not the end of the world. No, that's yes. like round, round eight. We need something that's like. Well, the, 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 our most important legacy publications, journalistic publications like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, abandoning and ruining their hard earned reputations over decades to do a jihad journalism. It, that is a problem. That is a huge problem. They're spreading misinformation and fear in a in a systematic way. That is, I would say that is a problem. I think they're they cornered. They are just financially motivated at this point. Yes. Hey, Tyler. Yes. Um, I have some breaking news, if it's okay to transition for a moment. And thank you for all the voices in this room. It's been, uh, as the mom of two teenagers, it's been very interesting to hear everyone's perspectives and um, and for how respectful everyone always is here. I appreciate that, even though things get heated every now and then. Um, FDA just announced their uh, proposed new, uh, new guidance on um, distinction between hearing aid and um, devices that will augment hearing. <laughs> So basically what we've been talking about over the last week or so, I think it's been um, regarding the uh, over-the-counter indications for augmented hearing support. And I, I won't pretend to be an expert on all things hearing, but I have been tracking this because I have such a, um, you know, so many personal stories about uh, access to hearing support and hearing um assistive devices that can fall outside what has been the monopoly that's been around for many years. So I did tweet it. I did tag tech news around the world. So you can read for yourself the difference um, between the, uh, the definitions of existing hearing devices and the um, over-the-counter hearing aids or hearing assistive devices. I think it will mean a lot to Apple uh, 
Google and others who are embedding these sorts of technologies into their tech. Right. And it's it's a blow to the legacy. And this this is an interesting preview into how Apple and Google and Amazon are going to destroy the medical system because the medical system, similar to the same similar thing is happening in defense where the Department of Defense and the same thing's happening with SpaceX, where you had these legacy providers to these entrenched industries where they had all of this cronyism lock in where they had these insane prices for rockets to, to launch satellites. They had this insane prices to provide uh, defense at the borders. They have this insane pricing in the medical space, which, by the way, Europeans, if you spend any time living in Europe, they write articles regularly laughing their fucking asses off at how fucking stupid Americans are for how much they pay for the, the shit that they're buying the same shit at a tenth of the cost. Because we have a broken, inflated, bloated system. And if the tech gets to get in there and have a fair fight, Apple's going to make ear uh, uh, hearing aids and Amazon and Google. All of them will make competitive products that are better technologically at a tenth of the price. And now you're getting a preview of what's about to fucking happen. They're going to do to the medical industry what SpaceX did to the fucking space industry. Woohoo. Happy. Well, Tyler, I had to explain this to somebody. The problem is the, the regulatory process, and Anna Marie will tell you, is, is structurally flawed in, in how you do it. So, for example, if you have a brand new product, meaning you actually innovate a new indication, a new cure, you have to go through an arduous process to get it cleared. The second you clear it, your competitor can do what's called a 510K directly off of it and be in business the next day. And that's the big challenge. It takes the, it takes the carrot away from any device manufacturer and moves you into a status quo where you're not looking at improving the care of delivery. You're just looking at maximum extraction of value out of whatever asset you've created. And that's the part that's bad because it hurts patients in the long run. Chris, that's not flawed. That's specifically curated. So, How do you mean so. I mean, I agree with what Chris just said. I'm, I'm, I want to follow what you were saying there. Uh, me or Irum? Irum. So just like the insurance system and uh, a lot of industries related to healthcare, which are very heavy into policymaking, how they support, how they finance all these policies to keep the system intact. So a bunch of people are benefiting and profiting. And that's why uh, the healthcare system is in the shape it is now, as I think we all know that. I see. I think I think she's agreeing, Chris. Or she was just stating it a little bit differently. But it, it is a it is a challenge. And, and I mean, for the I'll be curious to hear when people have a chance to digest. It's actually not a terribly long proposed rule, and it is open for comment. But I was because you read the like press release version of it, and you're like, woohoo! Even the playing field, you know, more options. Over the counter indication is a brand new thing for the hearing space, and and I I was viewing it as this all sunny side, right? Like it was all on the upside. And as I read it, I was like, mm, yeah, I don't know. I mean, my my sort of lobbyist uh, eyes reviewing it could see how the existing industry definitely had a hand in some of how this language is written in the proposed rule. Yep. And there are some very, in, in my view, pretty restrictive um, ah. 
pieces of language in there around what companies like I'll just use Apple as the example. It doesn't matter who it is, but some and someone is looking for this to to fall under this OTC non medical device. Uh, indicate like you you can't claim any of the things that we just talked about, right? Like you can't claim to be a device that like oh we could tell if your hearing, for instance, is declining, or the data points we've talked about these these um, earbuds or other devices being able to pull to that could detect any number of things. Um, that are health related as i read it on the first pass a lot of that's off the table so it's i don't know i i i'm gonna have to digest it a little more but i encourage others to do so that are interested in how this is going to play out yeah at the end of the day all a lot of it comes down to lobbying and regulation unfortunately in the u.s uh in China, it sure as hell doesn't. <laughs> but they have their own bizarre version of that. But um, it's it's interesting to see how regulations can change, open up new players into new markets, and the reclassification of them. I mean, Uber essentially was predicated on this whole concept of like driver employee. Not the you know, holy cow. They're still debating it on a state by state basis. It gets quite. Uh, you know, you think you're a startup. You 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 go. You imagine you started Uber. You think you're going to go into that. You're you're a tech company. No, you end up being a legal company. You end up being your biggest expense is fucking lawyers more than anything. It turns into this mass lobbying, political. You know, you're not. You're barely a tech company at all. You're a bureaucratic. You know, inter. It just gets ridiculous. It's not at all what a lot of entrepreneurs think they're going to get themselves into. Uh, I am uh, Anna Marie. I imagine you are sensing that as well. You, you're building your device for children, you know, and you thought, Oh, I'm, I'm a hardware company. No, you're a, you're a freaking legal company. Cause you're now you've got to do this crazy political legal dance around IP and patents and red tape and bureaucracy. It's just, it never ends. Regulatory, well, regulatory if affairs. Just, if it was just one place, right? Like if all that um, med tech folks like Chris and I, if all we had to deal with was the United States, probably could you know you can find your way through that and of course you know i'm fortunate to have the background i have in regulatory and policy making so it gives me a little bit of a leg up there and not having to spend quite as much on outside consultants to do that stuff but um the fact that i have to not just do that there but i have to figure out how then we roll any sort of um in progress work with fda over to the to cfda or chinese fda how do i get my you know hong kong clearance underneath and then have to still feed that data into cfda so being able to just market and sell your technology or get your technology into the hands of the people who need it in different parts of the world which is what both chris and i happen to be working on we're not focused on a u.s market entry and a u.s only ecosystem so it's very, very hard. And I know you know this from your, your startup innovators in, in, um, in Scandinavia and Stockholm as well. It's hard for them just to, you know, see Mark traditionally was going to be easier for tech uh, companies, tech, tech startups to get. And, and that sort of is even flipped on its head over the last couple of years. If I could mention one thing about this. Um... You know, just like uh, was just said about the state level, the states are really where the obstacles are with a lot of this stuff. I I, I was on the founding team at ISTAT. Uh, we sold out to Abbott in 99, but I was on the founding team in 92. And I joined as a sales rep. And 
within six months, I, I registered as a lobbyist in Louisiana and eventually wound up registering as a lobbyist in seven states and did a lot of work because at the time, medtechs were um, medtechs had to do blood testing. Nurses were not allowed to do blood testing in 17 states in the U.S. So um, I spent from 93 to 96 spending a lot of time going around and getting laws changed or regulations changed to allow nurses to do te that testing. And we opened up that market. I did it in telemedicine and a bunch, of a bunch of other areas too. But when you find out in the States is that often it's the, it's the state level medical societies. Like with this, you know, you can change it at the FDA level with the hearing aids. And I've done some work about five years ago with hearing aids with a few companies, General Hearing Corporation is one of them with my client. And um, the FDA is not the problem. The audiologist at the state level mandate that you have to go to an audiologist you have to go through certain channels and there are many many regulatory constraints in that so the regulatory capture nature of healthcare in the u.s and i've done mdd mddr in europe i've done kofi priest in mexico i've done canada health in canada and um i've by, found by far that u.s state regulation in fact there's many companies that are that i know of who still don't market in all 50 states they usually cherry pick the ones that are most economical and that's the ones they go to in their initial go to market plan. So anyway, just want to throw that in. Thanks. I'm David. Similar policy issues with uh, if you try to establish uh, IRB approval for research, if you're trying to uh, create like a underserved area clinic, um, uh, the connection with the insurance companies and so on and so forth. So this goes really deep. Okay, next up. Crowd, this is where are we at now. We went through the, uh, there's a ton of Apple headlines and then it goes into Google Pixel 6, number two, Facebook posts odd thread attacking journalists. Sure, sure they were from Vice. And then the next one, number four or number five, depending on how you count, CrowdStrike, which is a big American uh, cybersecurity company, de one of the biggest, uh, details China-linked Light Basin which has compromised 13 telecom companies since 2019, gaining access to subscriber info, call metadata, and more. An advanced network of digital spies with a nexus to Chinese interests has successfully compromised parts of the global telecommunications networks, sweeping up call data dating back years. The hacking group dubbed Light Basin by the firm and known publicly as UNC1945 has targeted the telecommunication sector since at least 2016, investigators found. New research has identified 13 telecommunications companies having been compromised by the network dating back to at least 2019. The specific companies are not identified. Here's the quote. People leverage their cell phones like they're magic says Adam Mayers, CrowdStrike Senior Vice President of Intelligence. They don't think about the fact that there's this whole infrastructure that makes it work. And that infrastructure is not something you can take for granted. The report lays out how this group has developed highly customized tools and precise working knowledge of global telecommunication network architecture such that it can e emulate network protocols to allow scanning and to quote unquote, retrieve highly specific information from mobile communication infrastructure. The nature of the data targeted, quote unquote, aligns with information likely to be of significant interest to signals intelligence operations. The researchers stopped short of attributing the activity directly to China, but noted that a hard coded key within one of the tools identified indicates the developer has some knowledge of the Chinese language. The group employs specialized tools. They are very adept at 
conducting those operations and have displayed, quote unquote, remarkable operational security. The research emerges amid escalating competition between the Chinese and U.S. governments in all manner of geopolitics, military power, cyberspace, trade and science. The CIA recently announced that it was reorganizing to focus more on understanding Chinese activities around the world as the country continues to exert itself technologically and the U.S. government grapples with major questions about why, what it truly knows about Chinese capabilities and whether the U.S. efforts are keeping pace. It would not be unprecedented for Chinese government-adjacent hackers to go after these kinds of targets. In August, Cyber Reason published research outlining attacks on Southeast Asian telecommunication companies that likely represented espionage. And that was in Indonesia, by the way. We read those headlines in real time about a month ago, you might recall. As the attackers were collecting billing. Oh, and by the way, it just happened to happen like two days after Indonesia did something that China really didn't like. That was really peculiar. I remember that aspect of that article. Uh, the attackers were collecting billing and call detail records, among other material. If this is at larger scale, it would speak to both greater Chinese capabilities and to expanded interest, the desire to track and survey individuals around the world, said Adam Segal, cybersecurity and policy expert at the Council of Foreign Relations. CrowdStrike released the report with information designed to help telecommunication companies look for specific activity and files, both within their corporate networks and within the telecommunications industry itself. Oh, here's the juicy quote at the end, last paragraph. They don't need to deploy malware onto your phone if they're owning the network that your phone is writing on, he said. While some messaging services allow for end-to-end -end encryption and would therefore prevent content interception, where this is happening and the scale that it's happening, there's still quite a bit of text message traffic that occurs. Wait, can I just ask a question? Yep. So does that mean like WhatsApp, which is end-to-end -end encrypted, um, there's, there's or like on, in apps like that, they're still pulling off data from, from those in, like quote unquote encrypted apps. Yep. It's just, it needs to be decrypted. And how long does that take? So like signal and, um, proton mail and all of those are, I mean, of course. This... if it rides on silicon, it can be, it can be cracked. So what is the value of encrypted end-to-end -end services that we're all like well most well, of us are going out of what's use. the purpose of having locks on your doors it makes it harder right you're not going to be able to protect yourself from a state actor trying to get into your device but the average person i think that's what that security is for okay so it's some level of protection yes i mean that's that's good yes it will stop your college, uh, you know, boyfriend from trying to get into your phone for the most part. So the next one is from Coindesk. Facebook says it will begin testing its Novi wallet in the U.S. and Guatemala, letting users trade the Paxos dollar. Coinbase will provide custody services. Facebook's Novi wallet is ready to launch, but it won't be launching with the DM, formerly Libra stablecoin. The AKA the Facebook coin. And Coinbase will provide custody services while Paxos is supplying the stable coin Novi will use. So essentially, it's just, I don't, it's just a wallet. It's a digital wallet. It's a crypto wallet. Well, they want to have the wallet because that's the data. They just want the data. They're not even really playing. They don't even want to burden themselves with all of the 
regulatory scrutiny, whatnot. They just want the data. I think it's an it's a it's a custodial wallet, right? They they actually own the wallet. You're basically like like Coinbase or any exchange. You're renting the space within it, but they still have access. Paxos operates on that system too. They're custodial, so that means you don't own it. You own you you have the right to access it, but you don't own it. Yeah, it says this does not mean our support of Diem has changed. We intend to launch Novi with Diem once it receives regulatory approval and goes live. Ah, so this is because they just want to get this thing out the door and they don't want to wait for all the regulatory red tape around their own coin. So let's get this wallet out there with other people's coins so at least we can start getting the users using our wallet before they start jumping into other wallets because Facebook understands if they don't offer a wallet soon, a lot of Facebook users are going to start signing up for wallets elsewhere. And that's sort of a missed opportunity. So let's rush out the wallet, which doesn't really require a lot of regulatory loopholes uh, or hoops, flaming hoops to jump through, So you know, before people start jumping into other solutions. And then we can add the that, coin later. That, that, it's pretty clever. Well, the thing is, though, depending on how the wallet is orchestrated, it actually does have some regulatory implications. Yeah, I, yeah I'm not saying it doesn't have none. I'm just saying it's much lighter no, than trying no, to get but- your own coin out there. No, actually, the stable coin right now with the current landscape, the stable coin would actually be easier be? to through than the wallet because custody is already being looked at and stable coins are not, there's nothing new in stable coins regulation yet. So it'd actually be easier for them to do the, the um, stable coin than the wallet if it's custodial, especially. That might be true uh, all around. I- I wonder if that's particularly true in Facebook's case, given the amount of scrutiny they're now under. <laughs> I, I think them wanting to do a stable coin, they might have to have, uh, they, I'm no doubt they've had several meetings about that. And he, why, then why, let me ask you this, if what you're saying is true, why is the wallet ready and the coin's not? I honestly think that this is just a very common thing. Um, most people don't really understand exactly how the regulatory landscape works. Otherwise, most of DeFi wouldn't look like it does. And most, you know, like the, we wouldn't go through these periods of ah. regulatory scrutiny and stuff. But for Facebook, I honestly think that they don't, they aren't considering the fact that custody right now is one of the primary considerations of both the SEC and Treasury. Like I wouldn't go into a custodial wallet or even a wallet that is connected to a custodial system right now because that is actually something that's it's i mean unless they're saying what the hell you guys are already examining us under a microscope let's go ahead you know and just do all of it i'm gonna bend over and cough like maybe that's why but otherwise it's probably because they are concerned about like a stable coin is harder to develop than uh than a wallet is that it's not a regulatory issue as much as like stable coins right now every single one of them is poorly designed like they work for DeFi for short-term use, but they will all break because like they're based on historical models that have all broken. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, for them to design one would take a lot of time and, and effort. And they're going to have to figure out exactly if they're going to do a reserve, which I bet they're going to do where the reserve is going to be from what is going to be held in the reserve. And then they have to allocate a huge amount of resources for that. So, I, I mean, I personally just think they looked at it from a financial matter and said, well, while it looks easier, it's simple, it's much simpler tech. And, you know, I don't see anybody going out making talk, making speeches about it, but to know what they're doing, you'd actually have to go back to like March or April and look at the list of 
priorities of what they're actually creating groups around and custody wallets and storage is all a big part of it because the liability attaches a huge amount of liability donna yeah i understand that they've been at regulators on state regulatory thing for the wallet for quite some time now for months um and the paxos uh arrangement is really interesting because the paxos in new york they did the deal with uh, PayPal where they came under Paxos's um, a bit license, which is specific to New York, in order to be able to have all of the states. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the big players like a Facebook or a PayPal, they don't want to start without New York, you know, the financial set, the quote financial center. And so some of them are coming over under there. At the moment, the DFS, the New York State DFS, <clears throat> in the in the regulatory approvals is very behind. They're down a lot of people. They're looking for somebody to replace um, Matt Homer. Um, other people have left there just because they spend usually two years and then they go and get a you know a, a job that's that's you know a, a, you know in the BC. You're going to say a real job, weren't you? You no, I, no, could, I, was I gonna say, feel it. I, I can feel I was, it. I was going to say a real job. No, I was going to say in. I was trying to not find something negative to say about the VC community. I was going to say in the VC community, which is, you know, kind of where, 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 where Matt went and, and, and the guy who was also uh, there went to INX as, as uh, not um, in the, in the, in the general counsel's office. So um, I do think that they're a little slow in approvals there. And I, the, I from what I understand, and I uh, defer to Alexandra on this, that the wallet per se is getting state by state approval. Now, they must be doing something with the wallet. They may be doing, getting ready to do money changing between fiat and their coin within the context of the wallet, and then they would need state-by-state state, uh, regulatory approval. Um, but, you know, with the whole stuff in the, in, in, in the White House where there are specific groups um, underneath the, 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 both the Treasury and, um, the, and PAL looking at specifically stable coins is a kind of tough environment to start thinking that Facebook's gonna get one out there easily. So a partnership is a good way to get the wallet, um, which will be, you know, like your bank. Yeah, because they wanna start being a particular, there's a whole, they seem, as Donna, you were the one who said they were testing it out in somewhere in Africa. Uh, and it seems like they understand that massive opportunity to use Facebook as the bank for the unbanked, of which there's uh, maybe a billion or, or so folks who are still unbanked. Yeah, and and last night I was at a, a talk that uh, uh, former CFTC chair uh, Chris John Carlo was giving on the occasion of the coming out of his his book Crypto Crypto Dad, <clears throat> and he said that you know uh, China with their CBDC, which will be testing next year um, at the Olympics, you know Facebook's going to have that wallet that can take that for all the people that go all around the world, and then they're going to use that CBDC until it you know filters back. We've talked about this. Um, many times, but um, yeah. So the wallet is the is one of the uh, important things to have in your um, in your arsenal with your phone. Yeah, but I, I but, think that but, the timing is key. They can't wait another year, right? Or even they don't, would prefer to get this thing out now, and yeah, so so yeah, they're willing yeah. to do do some creative maneuvering to get it out, uh, even if that means you know we'll we'll bring in our own coin later or whatnot. So the next one is says Google says its Play Store labels its Play Store labels that detailed user data collection will launch in February of next year, February 2022.
developers can showcase key privacy and security practices at a glance. So apps will now have these like nutritional labels that say this app collects and shares your data, the following data from you, your your personal info, your location, and two others. Click to see. Uh, Also, uh, that's kind of like the fat content or the calories of the app. And then you've got the the sugar, which says data is encrypted during transit. So you know if this device encrypts the data and you can request your data to be deleted or not. This app allows you to delete your data if you ask for it. Okay, that's kind of like the carbohydrates. And then you've got committed to follow the play family's policies. That's kind of like your vitamin A. And then independent security review. So some some other independent security system has reviewed this app and says that it's secure. Okay, great. So now you've got a nutrition label for your apps in the Google Play Store. It's kind of cool, actually. So the Google says it's Play Store labels that detail user data collection and more will launch in February. Pretty cool. Next one, Financial Times. Celsius Network CEO says Tether has issued USDT in return for cryptocurrencies, calling into question Tether's claim that it only accepts USD. Well, that's a technical point. Stablecoin operator accepts crypto in return for some loans, big customer says. A major customer of Tether has said the company lends. Uh, 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 Here's the article. Stablecoin operator accepts crypto in return for some coins, big customer says. A major customer of Tether has said that Tether lends out new stablecoins in return for cryptocurrencies, a claim that calls further into question Tether's founding promise that it only uses real dollars to issue tokens, which I think everyone knows is bullshit at this point. Alex. So so wait, Celsius actually said Celsius is the one that came out with this information or a a customer of Tether's? Celsius CEO. Oh my God! See, this is because you know there's this relationship now. The Tether and CE and uh, Celsius Tether was was loaning money to Celsius. Celsius is under investigation for some a lot of stuff based on their design and and other things. And their their opinion letter is not going to save them. Um, but uh, this is this is this is looks like a deal, right? Doesn't this look like a deal? This looks like a deal that, yeah. that the CEO. Yes, it like. does. Give you lots and lots of stuff. It's it looks and like a classic. Yeah, yeah. It says Alex Mashinsky, whose crypto lending platform Celsius Network has borrowed from Tether and counts it as an equity investor, told the Financial Times that as part of a lending arrangement, Tether has issued its so-called USDT units in return for well-known cryptocurrencies. If you give them enough collateral, liquid collateral, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and so on, they will mint Tether against it. He says. New USDT is issued for such loans, he says, and later destroyed when the loan is closed. So it does not permanently increase USDT in circulation. The comments contrast Tether's commitments that it issues units of the world's biggest stablecoin only in exchange for hard currencies. And that is probably useful in whatever case, you know, some government agencies building against Tether. And so you're right. This might be... um, kind of a plea deal in a trip in a typical kind of uh, drug you know pyramid bust it's going to be what what I, i'm curious donna and um alexander what what is your guess as to where things are going to head for tether where will tether be six months from now 
I think the more interesting question is where Celsius going to be. <laughs> I mean, you know, a Tether just settled, uh, yeah. um, you know, something with the CFTC. You know, again, you know, just a, it was Tether and Bitfinex, uh, which is the exchange for like 42 million, you know, cost of doing business. And, um, you know, I think the issue with Tether is going to be where is the, again, the Treasury and the, and the Fed going to come down on these stable coins? Are they going to be forcing them as USDC has kind of complied on its own so that it can move forward in a different uh, direction to be completely backed by Treasuries and USD? Um, so I think the Tether is going to have to go in that direction um, as well. Uh, because it can't have the otherwise it's going to get regulated by the SEC if it has this mix of uh, of different kinds of uh, security style instruments uh, within it. So I think that that that's the kind of direction it's going to go. But Mashinsky is going to be you know couldn't happen to a nicer guy um, <laughs> in in trouble. Okay. I mean I, I oh, go, sorry, no no go ahead. I mean I I I agree that uh, I mean Tether's got actual problems. It looks like New York actually gave a lot of the evidence that they couldn't actually use, but was uh, supporting their case. They gave it to the feds. I think that there's a lot um, more that's going to happen with Tether. And the biggest problem with Tether right now is that it doesn't have the place in the um, in the in the universe, the crypto universe that it held before, like it was the only way to get into Bitcoin or other coins for a large part of the world. So it held a place that was really protected. Um, it doesn't it's not that way anymore. And um, and so now the need and desire to protect it, I think, is much lower. The only thing that's that's um, keeping it uh, buoyant now, for the most part, is that Circle, which is the USDC, the next largest stablecoin, is also under investigation. So I think that, you know, people are looking saying, oh, I put it in a circle, but oh, oh wait, wait, I can't do that because now what the hell is going on with that? So I think people are just waiting it out to see what happens. You know, people go in and out of stablecoins really quickly, generally speaking. They don't hold a bunch of them. But um, the fact that you know, they're these uh, the cash equivalents and then, you know, they're using notes up to nine months and whatever. Like these are all things that are not um, that are not uh, proper backing for um, according to their own documents. Right. But also not proper backing for something that's supposed to be fully liquid. So I, I don't know. I think there's a there's going to be a lot that happens with Tether Celsius. Celsius is, I mean, we've known for a while that they've got some problems and all of DeFi is going to get hit hard. A DeFi winter is coming, but um, enough. Will yeah, there are lots and lots, just to back up that point and let Alexander continue then, there are lots of subpoenas outside, whether for specific wrongdoings, investigations. It, they, the SEC has done a, a January uh, 2018 for DeFi now, you know, a lot, a lot of lawyers involved. For sure, for sure. And the other thing is a lot of the base construct of a lot of DeFi literally makes it a security. And I'm not really sure where this is. This is my only thought, and this is the only thing I can say to people is that there's this misconception that Howie is the sum total of securities law. And it's like the tiniest part of it. <laughs> so um, it falls under another section of securities law, but clearly most the way most of these are designed, not all of them, but most of them, the way that they're designed, they're clearly securities and they're, you know, they've been trading and they don't understand that that is an improper setup, right? So there's two big issues in here. One is um, the, uh, the applications that are actually uh, really securities ap applications that they're, that they're treating as if they were not securities. And then the other part are these um, unregistered exchanges 
that are trading things that are securities, right? So if you're a swap and you're trading DeFi tools, then, you know, or DeFi instruments, you're literally a swap trading unregistered securities or an exchange trading unregistered securities. And so that's why you see them going after, they're starting to go after the people who are the devs of of these things like if, if you're like um if you're a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization instead of saying uh you know oh well there's no one to go after which is kind of the thought for a lot of people in these DAOs. that's not really how it works they start going after the people who started the code like you can tell who who started it so and that's the same basic methodology of what they did to go after the tax evaders um in 2017 2018 was saying, okay, you want to say that you're, you know, you're evading taxes and you don't want us to find you. Well, where, where do we know you went? You went to these exchanges. So they looked at Coinbase and other exchanges and they went to the hedge funds and they just ripped them open and said, all right, we're going to find you this way. And we're going to be harder on you because you didn't actually volunteer to um, give us information and you didn't uh, you didn't file anything for taxes. So this is this, it's the same methodology of they're just going to the beginning and they're going to rip it all open and they're going to figure out everybody all the players and all of this idea that they're somehow protected by this you know this magic non-entity <laughs> is is not going to last i don't think so i hope it won't but it won't for a long time i mean it won't soon because they're going to rip it apart and and people will be like oh no we can't function in this area which is not true you just can't do it the way they're doing it Okay, next up, uh, Alibaba unveils new 5 nanometer server chip using ARM architecture coming to its data centers in the near future and not to be sold commercially for now. Sundar Pichai, Google CEO, calls for the creation of a new U.S. federal privacy regulations and stresses the importance of staying ahead in AI, quantum computing, and more. In a wide-ranging interview at the Wall Street Journal Tech Live conference that touched on topics like the future of remote work, AI, and uh, tech activism, uh, something the Wall Street Journal knows a thing or two about, um, Sundar Pichai answered a whole bunch of questions and has a whole bunch of juicy quotes. For example, he says, the, government's ha- the government has limited resources and needs to focus when it comes to U.S. and China on competing on the likes of AI, quantum computing, and cybersecurity, noting that Google's investments in these areas come at a time when the governments were slightly pulling back on basic R&D funding, and that Google started investing. He says, but all of, but all of these are benefiting from foundational investments we made 20 to 30 years ago, which is what a lot of the modern tech innovation is based on, and we take it a bit for granted. So when we look at the semiconductor supply chain, and quantum computing, the government can play a key role, both in terms of policies and allowing us to bring in the best talent from anywhere in the world, or participating with universities and creating some of the longer-term research areas. Um, these are areas that private companies may not focus on day one, but play out in 10 to 20 years. In the wake of increased cyber attacks across borders, Pichai said the time had come for a sort of Geneva Convention for the cyber world. Because in the Geneva Convention is what prohibits countries from, uh, you know, creating wars with each other. Essentially, that's kind of the rules of engagement around hot combat, and we need that for tech because China and Russia are doing cyber attacks on the U.S. very regularly. We read them almost daily, including today. 
In fact, today we have both China and Russia separately in separate headlines attacking different parts of the U.S. infrastructure. So that's a brilliant concept, actually. If you, you want to be part of the developing world, you have to join the Geneva Convention uh, of Behavior and Standards. And if you don't, then you get kicked out of the WTO. That would be amazing. That's a brilliant idea, actually. Adding that governments should put security and regulation higher on their agendas, he more directly argued in favor of a new federal privacy regulations in the U.S., something Google has pushed for, suggesting something like the GDPR in Europe. So the next one is uh, an in-depth look at Google's quote-unquote moonshot plans to run entirely on clean energy by 2030, going beyond pledges by Apple, Amazon, and others. Sundar Pichai wants to head the first giant company run without emissions around the clock. It will take far more than money to achieve. That's the headline uh, from Bloomberg. Google Bayview, the company's newest campus, consists of three squat buildings Nestled near the San Francisco Bay shoreline, a few miles east of its headquarters in Mountain View, the first thing visitors notice are the roofs. They curve down gently from pinched peaks like circus tents, sloping almost to the ground. Each roof is blanketed with overlapping solar panels that glisten with a brushed metal sheen on the edges. Google calls this design dragon scale. And indeed, it looks like as if a mythical beast is curled up by the water in Silicon Valley. I wish we w- I wish we were at this moment a decade earlier. Sundar Pichai admits, "I'm worried and very anxious. We're losing time." Yep, that's for real. Okay, um, and there's a whole bunch of photos of the new Google campus, for lack of a better word, which looks like a huge circus tent, basically. But it's it's not tent; it's solar panels, and they do look like dragon-like scales, the way that the tent uh, looks. So uh, uh, annual electricity consumption. Oh, here's a fun one. Of the big tech companies, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, who uses the most uh, million megawatt hours, the most annual energy consumption? Google. 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 Facebook. Amazon. What was the question? Which one uses the most (laughs) energy? From what? Which one? All (laughs) energy. Annual electricity consumption. You mean among it's the big tech, right? It's got to be Facebook. Does that include Facebook. users? I would say manufacturing. Has to be Facebook. The, the choice is messy. Oh. Are Amazon, Google, Microsoft, yeah. Facebook? Oh, I think I would say Amazon. 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 Now, Amazon. Now, now everyone changes their answer to match messy. Well done, everybody. <laughs> messy. Oh, Amazon. Wow. <laughs> I have Amazon. 
Amazon. I see Amazon because the rest Tyler, are just talking about before before Messi. Only only Vinay said Amazon, and then after Messi said Amazon, everyone said Amazon. For the record, Tyler, we <laughs> it was recorded. Well for those, we know what's so, so just from a logistic perspective, we're the, team Messi. No, the AWS data centers. Yep are yep. uh, the highest energy consumption, so it has to be yes. Amazon. They have more data centers than anybody Correct. else. How about Google Cloud then? It's not as big as AWS. Ah, okay. Okay, Amazon wins. Yes. So we need the lottery by, number. By, by the way, guys, I don't know how many of you know this, Google actually hosts some of their data on AWS data centers. Ooh. Oh, wow. And <laughs> Apple uses a lot of Google Cloud, actually. And then the, the okay. state of Maine, one of the, one of the 50 American states, fits in between Microsoft and Google. And then Amazon, being the largest, is still about a third of all household lighting in the U.S. There you go. Next up, uh, Berlin-based grocery delivery startup Gorillas raises nearly $1 billion. We, we, didn't we read that headline two weeks ago? Including $235 million from Delivery Hero at a $3 million valuation. That is precisely the headline we read two weeks ago. Why is it back here today? That's weird. The next one, Skyflow, which offers a zero-trust repository for customer data, raises $45 million. And the next one, the NSA... National Security Agency, the CISA, the Cyber Security Administration, and the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, say that ransomware group Black Matter, if you're guessing Russia, you're correct, is attacking critical U.S. infrastructure, including the food sector, demanding $15 million in crypto. NSA, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, shine light on Black Matter ransomware threat to the food industry. Demands up to $15 million, where they've now attacked two of America's biggest food uh, supply chain companies. And why are they attacking food? Well, the last thing they attacked was also the food, the JBS Meat Company. So they happen to have an, an interest in attacking food. And before that, they attacked the Colonial Pipeline, which was energy. And that make me, might make a little sense when you hear me ranting every day, as I'm known to do, about telling everyone to secure their own food and energy and water. Oh, and by the way, last week... But have you, have you also covered that they, their next attack, that this is the supposition from the Department of Defense, will be our water mm -hmm. lines? And right. they'll be using toxicity to kill people with the next concern. What a surprise. So... I've said, take care of your own water, food, and energy. And I understand you think it's secure because it's worked your whole life. And as as the little cat who, you know, the parent brings the food right at five o'clock, right on, right on time, every day you get your water bowl and your food. Every time you go at 5 p.m., the food's always there. And you go, go to the supermarket, the food's always there. And you go to the gas station and the gas is always there. But now that everything's becoming digitized, including our supply chains, including our agricultural and en energy sector, and even the water, now that that's all being digitized, it can all be cyber attacked. 
There was an attack on uh, Tampa's water lines recently. We read the headlines about four or five days ago that it turns out that the water system has been been attacked repeatedly lately. And they're intentionally, the authorities are not informing people to prevent them from panicking. Tyler, it's true. And we're basically in cyber warfare. and People don't understand this. This is World War III that we're entering. And, and these guys are all pushing the boundaries right now of um, because, you know, it's, it's diplomacy talks about um, agreeing not to attack infrastructure. And so they're pushing basically, obviously, water is infrastructure food. So the food ones, they've, they're trying to stay at, like, how big does it have to be to be considered critical infrastructure? But again, yes, all of these are under attack. And yes, it's daily. So... This is your hourly reminder that I don't even drink water anymore. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> like powder now? Are you just like you're concentrated? Did did it say what the um what the what they were? Was it just Bitcoin that they wanted, or was it another? Crypto? Others. Monero was the other one. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's also related. If you can connect the dots for for the slow kids in class, where's Dave? The Biden administration has been working overtime. There was a meeting last week of 30 countries at, that the White House assembled for no apparent reason. Uh, 30 countries to work together to combat cybersecurity threats precisely such as this. And interestingly, Russia was not invited to participate. What a big surprise. Nor was China. Nor, nor was China. And this is just such a huge shock and so confusing. If you can figure out why that might be, please DM me and help us figure out that one out. Because that's a real puzzle we've been trying to figure out. So. Uh, actually, Tyler, that's because Russia, China, North Korea, Ukraine, they were having a separate conference at the oh, same time. There you I go. mentioned it weeks ago. Well, funny you say that, Vinay, actually. Funny you say that. Give me two seconds you'll, and you'll see why. Give me two seconds here. Let me read this headline that somebody just sent in here. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Two seconds. Two two more seconds. Where is it? Oh, there it is from BB. From Reuters. You've heard of Reuters? You know, one of those places that's still doing journalism and not becoming activists. Heard about You've that. heard of them. Reuters. Here's the actual headline. China, Russia, Navy ships jointly sail through the Japan Strait. That's right. Ah, so they were kind of busy. Remember, I told you they didn't care about the invite. They have their own thing going on. North Korea is already positioning themselves. Their funds, their money is 25% higher than USD. So this, They are consolidating. Oh, this article. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, the Association of Cyber Hackers founding members meeting was going on. <laughs> so then the... the this article just came out a few hours ago. China, Russia, Navy ships jointly sail through Japan Strait, which is where Taiwan is, by the way, for those who, for the Americans in the room, you know, because we don't teach geography in America. So a group of 10 Navy vessels from China and Russia sailed through a strait separating Japan's main island and its northern island of Hokkaido. Holy shit, Batman. That is some serious uh, provocation right there. For those who don't understand, uh, Japan doesn't really think of itself as separated from Hokkaido. <laughs> Sailing between Hokkaido and Honshu, that's like a BFD. That's a big fucking deal. That's like somebody walking through your living room to get to your backyard. And saying fuck you in the, in the process. 
And Tyler, in addition to not teaching geography, we don't teach cyber, we don't teach any of this stuff. We are, what, a decade, (coughs) I think is the estimate. So, yeah, this is all pretty serious. It was the first time Japan has confirmed the passage of a Chinese and Russian naval vessel sailing together through the Sugaro Strait, which separates the Sea of Japan from the Pacific. While the strait is regarded as international waters, Japan's ties with China have long been plagued by conflicting claims over a group of tiny East China Sea islets. Tokyo, which is totally to the south of Japan, even far below Okinawa, by the way. That's a total, those are thousands of kilometers away, by the way. That's, this is a totally separate issue. Tokyo has a territorial dispute with Moscow as well on its, some of its very northern, kind of west northern uh, islands. The government is closely watching Chinese and Russian na- naval vessels, activities around Japan, like this one with high interest, says Deputy Chief Cabinet Secretary Yoshihiku Osuzaki told a regular news conference on Tuesday, we will continue to do our utmost in our surveillance activity in waters and airspace around Japan. A Japan Defense Ministry spokesperson said there had been no violation of Japanese territorial waters and no international rules were broken by the passage of the vessels. Russia and China held joint naval drills in the Sea of Japan as part of a naval cooperation between the two countries from October 14 to 17 involving warships and support vessels from Russia's Pacific fleet. Moscow and Beijing have cultivated closer military and diplomatic ties in recent years at a time when their relations with the West have soured. Um, Tyler, I think you are talking about the pa- passage is above Hokkaido, right? To the north of Hokkaido, mm-hmm. right? The dispute water between Japan and Russia, Let me right? see, let me see. Let me, it's called the Su- it's Sugaru top. Strait. Let's okay. Google. I think it should be on top because it cannot be between Hokkaido and Honshu because that's totally off off, off limits, off. right? It's totally Japan waters, right? Yeah. I think it's on top. Right. I, that's what was that's what was spooking me. It was like, holy! There's no way that happened. No, it's possible. It's no, it's totally possible to do it. And they did it. It is. It's it's right between Hokkaido and Honshu. What? Yes. Show me. Uh, do you tweet it? Do you tweet it? I, I take a look. Did somebody said something about three um, three currencies that are combining? They're consolidating. What was that? I don't know who that was because I was. Oh, I not lost, that they are consolidating uh, currencies. Who said that about the, that it's twenty higher because they're consolidating? Who? What? What is that? What was that? Uh, they're not consolidating currencies. They're consolidating forces and resources. Um, uh, that would be Russia, China and North Korea, we're not talking about North Korea right now, but currently they're, um, they're 25% up on USD currency, and they've been using a lot of cyber hacking quietly. They've also outsourced a lot of their um, cyber hackers to different locations. South Korea has asked for assistance to track them. It's, it's really interesting what's going on over there. Wow, that's a... Uh... That's news. That's big news. Um, uh, next one, Israeli company called Kato Networks or Kato Networks, C-A-T-O, uh, which offers cloud-based tools to protect remote workforces, raises $200 million at $2.5 billion. And Global Foundries sets its IPO range at $42 to $47 per share, raising $2.6 billion. Crypto firms and trade groups have filed over a dozen new disclosures to hire lobbyists in D.C. since the tax amendment 
to the U.S. infrastructure bill this summer. Yep, they definitely want to make sure their voices are heard. They have a seat at that table. And YouTube passes $3 billion in global consumer spending on iOS, ranking third behind Tinder and Netflix. Massachusetts-based Aura, which offers device and identity theft protection, raises $200 million. Brazilian banking and payment startup Pismo, which offers cloud-based tools, raises $108 million from SoftBank. Singapore-based GenieBook, which uses machine learning and human teachers to provide personalized learning. That's I love those words, personalized learning, by the way. Let people learn at their own pace and... Uh, so fantastic. In their own way. Raises $16 million and says it's used by 150,000 students. Uh, UK supermarket Tesco launches its first get-go, just walk-out store, using weight sensors and AI to track purchases in partnership with a startup called Trigo. And a consortium of France's largest financial market participants utilized Banque de France's digital currency as part of a 10-month blockchain experiment. TransferWise, now known as WISE, reports Q2 revenue of £132 million, up 25% year-over-year, as nearly 4 million used transferred users transferred uh, the $18 billion, which is up 36% year-over-year. So I imagine... Let's look at the ticker now, shall we? I imagine there might be a nice bump now that they've reported that. And now, no, it's down 6.9%. I guess that didn't meet so market Tyler, expectations. Uh, TransferWise uh, sent out a notice to all its users about, I don't know, five days yep. ago or so, mm -hmm. saying um, they are not able to do uh, either... Chinese-based or Hong Kong-based currency transfers yeah. for an undisclosed period of time. Yep. Refer do it as a technology issue that they're working through. But um, anyway, we use TransferWise well, to go USD Hong uh, Kong and back forth. Kind of humorous, as it's obviously the CCP told them you can't let people get money out of China. And that's a, that's technically an issue. That, that's technically an issue. That's a technical issue right there. Technically, we've got an issue <laughs> with China. Well, it's very words, words matter for companies that need to, you know, send money back and forth for, you know, critical infrastructure and projects. And, you know, these aren't like large companies probably don't have an issue here, but there are a lot of smaller companies, um, certainly bigger ones than Bloom Standard, but there are a lot of smaller companies that use TransferWise for this very reason. So Cheryl and I and BB have all confirmed in the DMs that the where China and Russian Navy sailed was precisely through Sapporo and Honshu Islands, which that's like walking right through the middle of somebody's fucking living room in the middle of dinner with your dirty feet. <laughs> and there's a train track across underground, uh, undersea. There's too. an undersea train, yeah, that goes between the two islands. That's bullet train, no less. So this is like, that. that is wildly inflammatory that that is that says a lot without saying anything yes yeah that they, and they've never done it before there's no reason to do it other than to send a very huge middle finger 
because it's quite out, right in time for October 20th, though. It's, by the it's way. a bit out of their way to go do that one. So, uh, by the way, I mean, for those who didn't weren't with us when we were watching what the rest of the developed world was doing about six weeks ago, you had the U.S., Germany, India, Australia, France, Germany. That's about half of them. All those and the U.K. with HMS uh, Queen Elizabeth all traveling incredibly great distances from the UK and the US and Germany and Japan and Australia and France, all to Taiwan and sailing through the South China Sea, giving a big middle finger to China because China claims that as its territory. So uh, they obviously didn't take that. They didn't want to take that lying down. And now we're starting to see who's actually going to participate in this big uh, brawl after school, you know, behind the gym. And Russia's conference is tomorrow. We'll see if China shows up, Afghan shows up, and other players. And then we'll understand where the lines are drawn. Well, we also know the who is using Huawei 5G versus as America said, don't do, that's CCP spyware. You're begging for it. And now that you know why it's so cheap, now you know why. They're subsidizing it so they can get all your, so they can drink your juicy, juicy data milkshake. Uh, Tyler, check your DM. I, uh, a few minutes ago, I tweeted an article to you about uh, a new quad that's being formed in the Middle East to counter China there. Because uh, China was desperately trying to get Israel, UAE, and a few countries on board. Uh-huh. Oh, that's interesting. But that's juicy. Here we go. Hindustan Times from our friend Vinay. Here it is. China ramps up scale and duration of military drills in East after uh, Ladakh Row, meaning China just had a bit of a hot conflict with India up in the Himalayas. No, no, no. That's not the one. There's the article before that. Was, that. Oh, that, that article is old. Okay. Well, this is the most recent one you just sent, the one I just wasn't talking about. No, just, no the one just before, above that. I sent you another one. Oh, okay, the, the uh, one before I, that one. Yeah. Okay, then we'll get to that one. Okay, why, why here we US go. And India? Why U.S. and right. India? Why the U.S. and India are taking on China with a Middle Eastern quad? Well, I, I can tell you why, but let's see why this journalist thinks why. China has been wooing Israel and the UAE. Now they both seem to have pulled away to be part of a second quad, or the first murmurings of a new world order. And and for those who don't know, who haven't joined us regularly, haven't been following along, in the massive decoupling of China and the U.S., the U.S. is going to create a new world order without China. And if you, you have to decide whose side you're going to be on for this big backyard brawl, uh, mud pit, oil wrestling, naked oil wrestling match that's going to go on between Uncle Xi and Joe Biden. So... That's such a pleasant image, Tyler. <laughs> there may be a few wedgies and maybe even a swirly at some point during that naked it's oil. dodgeball all yes. over again. <laughs> oh, my God. If that actually happened, I think we would find peace somehow because we'd all agree that we need to have our eyeballs removed surgically <laughs> and the memories uh, nematically removed. Right. But the the it's clear uh, who a lot of the countries are on each side. Russia's obviously with China. A whole lot of, you know, America's traditional allies are staying uh, uh, with the U.S. on this one. And because, you know, they like doing this stuff called trade, importing and exporting. And they feel like, you know, 
the U.S. is actually a better ally to have than China. But you, the U.S. is basically forcing everyone to pick sides. So China was trying. So is China. Yes. Well, China, China is trying to court lots of people to join their side of the dodgeball match that's about to ensue. And they were trying to court, according to this article, Israel and the UAE, which makes sense because those are not obviously clear which side they will go with. And it, the article says it's a crowded foreign policy. Israel, really? Huh? In Israel and the U.S., or there's no air between those two. Uh, Come on, Israel's you know in the U.S. or practically. I would agree. Kindred I would spirits. Agree. As long as we continue, yeah, but U.S. As long, it, it, yeah. Go ahead. It, Israel's looking for a new ring. You know, it, she needs to renew her vows. Maybe upgrade the ring. Turn in the. Uh, turn I, in the I, I, I would. I would five. definitely say UAE is in that, is in that category. But yep. Israel is come on. Anyway, yeah, 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 but you got to remember, Israel is very strained under Obama, and now you got Biden. So, I mean, it was very strong with Trump, and now it's, you know, it could be, could be a little bit of a. You might be going where the kisses are sweeter. It says it's a crowded foreign policy week with Indian officials participating in the Moscow-led round of talks with the Taliban on October twentieth. That's tomorrow, where the Taliban's going to meet with Moscow. And India is participating uh, tomorrow. And the external affairs minister uh, is meeting with Israel to update the relationship with the new uh, Bennett uh, government in Israel. And then there was Monday late evening, the part virtual part in-person summit between the foreign ministers of India, Israel, UAE, and the U.S. A startling idea of an informal quad on this side of the globe. So who was the elephant in the room this time? No prizes for guessing again, China. As China reorganizes the world in her own image from South Asia to Canada and Europe via Israel and Gulf kingdoms like the UAE, it seems as if the U.S. is gaining fuller clarity about its role as a big power after having divested itself from its millstone called Afghanistan to protect its own position from China snapping at its heels seeking to become world number one, the U.S. is clearly exploring new arrangements, alliances, and coalitions. At the end of the day, give or take a military nuance or two, it all amounts to the same principle, who is your enemy number one? That's the principle on which the Quad, which members are the U.S., Australia, Japan, and India, is built. That's the traditional Quad, by the way. When we talk about, when you hear the Quad mentioned in political news, that, that's the OG Quad. Which, by the way, they just had a meeting three weeks ago, which is U.S., um, India, Japan, and U.K., yeah? Uh, Sorry, Australia. U.S., Australia, Japan, India. That is also the principle on which Quad 2, Middle Eastern Quad, is being natured. And in this Middle Eastern Quad, it's Israel, UAE, India, U.S., Uh, What is truly surprising is the supersonic speed with which the U.S. is moving. Less than a week ago, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken met his counterparts in the UAE and from Israel in Washington, D.C. They agreed to set up two working groups on religious coexistence, said to be the UAE's idea, and on water management and energy issues, said to be Israel's idea. The meeting in D.C. was to celebrate the first anniversary of the Abraham Accords signed a year ago between the Israel and the UAE in Bahrain, which opened up parts of the Gulf to Israel and vice versa, ending decades of mistrust between the two. In the years since, Israel has 
opened embassies in the UAE and Bahrain, and uh, an unprecedented 130,000 Israelis arrived in the UAE as tourists, and the UAE-Israel Business Council was set up on Monday as India had was added to the fourth leg to stabilize the table. The message was clear. UAE capital plus Israeli technology plus inexpensive Indian labor is being stirred in a potpourri by the U.S. while offering each country the flexibility to move as fast, slow as its domestic policies allows it to go. That's the beauty of the first quad anyway. When it was the first through thought up, the Japanese believed it should have a security dimension, but India has shied away from that idea and believes non-military determinants are the way forward, vaccine development and delivery, for example, and climate change. The determ- a determined U.S. decided to act. Uh, how does India benefit? Okay. So this will be very interesting because it's the UAE was really in the middle because they did go with Huawei 5G, even though a U.S. said, don't do that. And if you do do that, we won't sell you our F-35s, which is the kind of top of the line, you know, fighter aircraft. And the UAE says, mm, but we really need this 5G, the real cheap 5G. And they and they bought it anyways. They went with Huawei anyways, even though we told them we won't sell you the F-35s. And then it turns out we're selling them the F-35s anyways. So, so Tyler, do you know that section that's titled a determined uh, U.S. determined to act? Read that because uh, Evan's point about Israel and U.S. being uh, joined at the hip and why that, that may be changing is right in that section. So you might want to just read that out loud. Which uh, a determined U.S. decided to act. But the U.S. was not content to watch when it believed its interests were threatened by its close ally Israel and its close competitor China. So... Three years after Netanyahu sold a section of the very busy commercial Haifa port to Shanghai International Port Group in 2015, the U.S. Navy objected to the sale because its sixth fleet uses an adjacent Israeli naval base where nuclear weapons capable submarines are housed. In 2020, Netanyahu further refused the U.S. Coast Guard permission to inspect the port for Chinese surveillance capabilities. Yep, that'll fuck shit up real quick. Yeah, so after what they did in Sri Lanka with the port, I mean, I'm surprised Israel even gave them 1% of the Haifa port. The Joe Biden administration, concerned that Iran had become China's go-to nation to buy oil, quickly got into the act only a few months ago. Dubai's DP World and Israel Shipyards Industry Industries, part of Israel's military complex, won the project to develop a section of the Haifa port that lies directly opposite the Chinese-owned section to create a U.S.-friendly harbor at this crucial future transportation hub. So I think Israel's intentionally trying to sit right in the middle between China and the U.S., similar to the way that the UAE has done, and Thailand as well. And there's these really interesting key countries who think that it's in their best interest to play both sides, so, namely Thanks Thailand and upgrades. By the way, and But by the way, the UAE and Thailand are both saying they're going to participate in the uh, China's central bank digital currency. So, yeah, we'll see. But that, that's, this is the whole big brouhaha. And, but you're right. It, it, would make, it would be a little surprising. I agree with you, Evan, that it would be quite surprising if Israel... 
didn't side. But I think strategically, uh, I think they have a well-deserved reputation as master negotiators. And the best negotiation move is to at least pretend like you might go to the dance with Uncle G. Because there's that's leverage. So anyway, next up. Doesn't doesn't the whole thing sound like, you know, the old East versus West kind of scramble things, everybody taking sides. It just is not a nice time to see this. Mm -hmm. It's just, I thought we were way beyond this, especially for Africa. You know, you can see really the aftermath of all that type of campaign, you know, look at Somalia after 1991, you know, the socialism and the, you know, the West and then stuff. And then when the wall starts crumbling and socialism come, you know, falling apart, and nobody had any interest and um you know all of a sudden the, the the fighting comes and just it became stateless it still is a stateless the whole country divided into three origins you know three regions it just I, i'm just worried that we're gonna have another scramble for africa if these things continue Ugh. Oh, yeah. China's already dumped a billion into Africa and they're going to use the resources there to leverage this so-called war. And honestly, Messi, this was going to happen with IoT making us closer neighbors and creating less resources for everyone. We're scrambling for number one. We're scrambling for profit. This was going to happen. Okay. Just as such. So next up is, uh, did we go through, we pretty much have gone through um, the big stories. TransferWise did its Q2. A Finnish startup called Avon, which helps companies build open source projects, raises $60 million. India's Cred, which rewards customers for paying their credit card bills on time, raises $251 million. Uh, a hacker breached the Argentinian government's IT network last month, stealing citizens' personal details and leaking some, including Lionel Messi's details which is the biggest uh, personality in all of South America, let alone Argentina, where he's practically a living god. Um, Invesco drops its pursuit of a Bitcoin futures ETF hours before the first such product begins trading on the U.S. stock market. And there, there's sources claiming that Beats Fit Pro earbuds with non with with active noise cancellation and Apple's H1 chip will launch November 1st. New York Attorney General's cease and desist letters to two cryptocurrency lending firms, Nexo and Celsius. And the Wall Street Journal reports that according to internal documents, Facebook's AI has minimal success enforcing its rules against problematic content, including removing an estimated 3 to 5% of hate speech. Right. And then Facebook responds an hour later saying, you dipshits, we don't use AI to remove hate speech. We have dozens of ways that we do that. We're not at all dependent on our AI to remove the hate speech. That's not how we remove the hate speech. In fact, we remove 99.999995% of hate speech, but not by AIs. So the fact that our AI, our AI has removed 3 to 5%, the fact that you're trying to scare everybody into thinking that we only remove 3 to 5%, that's what your journalistic jihad that you're on the Wall Street Journal Jihad organization is trying to do 
corporate terrorism against Facebook. They're trying to confuse and stir misinformation and fake news that Facebook only removes three to five percent of hate speech because they intentionally write a headline that's intentionally misleading by saying Facebook's AI has minimal success in enforcing its rules against problematic content, including removing an estimated only three to five percent of hate speech. And you reading that assume, <laughs> oh wow. If if somebody writes hate speech, there's only a three to five percent chance that it'll be removed. No, not at all. They don't really use AIs to remove hate speech. They use humans to do that. And you'd be wrong. Um, and they got that data point precisely from a document out of thousands from somebody in the organization whose views, that's their own personal view. This is not a Facebook recognized fact or anything like that. This is just somebody who wrote some uh, slide in some deck that they whipped up at El Pollo Loco before they went into the meeting. And now it's in the hands of the Wall Street Journal. And and then rather than contact Facebook and say, hey, Facebook, we found this slide that somebody wrote at El Pollo Loco before their meeting one day five years ago. Uh, can you shed some light on this? Because we'd love to know what this is really about. They didn't do that. Why didn't they do that? Because they don't want to know the context of what it's about because they're not interested in context. They're interested in jihad. They're doing the jihad. They're trying to take them out. They are. They got the guns. They got the Kalashnikovs ready. And they don't care what Facebook's explanation is. They're not interested in rational, reasonable explanations. What is it, Tyler? What is that? Like, do you guys hear something? Yes, I did. Some. That's the, jihad. that's the jihad that's the wall street journal jihad that they're on should have made that a trivia i would have won yeah i mean i i think we're confounding sounds with like extremists but, but yeah usually that thing that i can't do, no no lukisha some i have my own leaked i have my own sources i have my own leaked files so we have we have our own whistleblower who sent me leaked files from inside the Wall Street Journal. We've got actual files that we're now sharing from our own sources from the Wall Street Journal. This is reportedly a sound file from the Wall Street Journal's editor's office. Right there. Stop it. <laughs> that's that's Tyler, they've Tyler, internally a re- I'm being told that they're calling it the Wall Street Journal Jihad on Facebook. You press a button, right? It's not automatic, right? Can I ask a question about the um, headphone or the earphone thing uh, really quickly? Uh, Just a a quick question. um, uh, I read, and this is not useful because I don't have it in front of me, but I read that that noise-canceling headphones or noise-canceling ear things that go in your ear um, can actually uh, do long-term damage yeah, we read to that. the nerves. 48 hours ago. Oh my oh. God, yeah. it does, don't say that. It does wha- oh, my husband and I use them regularly. Ah. It, uh, was that Alexandra who was saying that? Yeah. yeah. Yes. That was, we read that headline yeah. 48 hours ago. The claim by the doctors is that it causes wax buildup, and the wax buildup will lead to other problems. So if you leave the sealed ones, you know, the AirPod Pros for too long, you'll get that wax buildup and that wax buildup can lead to other difficulties. Clean your ears regularly. Yeah. So, so 
So take, you know, you know what? They could fix that very easily. They could, they know when it's in your ears. And then after three hours in your ears, they can say, hey, you know, clean your, clean the wax out, bozo. Yeah, use a candle, the wax candle. No, they don't. That's- oh my God. That, that's hydrogen peroxide. Um, have you, um, I don't know if in that article it actually talked about the, the, the developers that are actually having a problem because they, they have them in like eight or 12 hours a day yeah. while they're working. And they're actually seeing like the cilia is damaged and it can't be repaired. Like they're missing now, like a particular high tones or whatever. I don't know if you, if that was probably, that was probably in that article that you read. So check this out. So a couple other new headlines have just popped in since we went through the big ones previously. Uh, Facebook portal go review, which they launched uh, a week or so ago. Now the tech journalists got their hands on the preview unit and they're reviewing it. And they say that the portable with decent six hour battery life and good camera and tracking, but too few apps and requires Facebook or WhatsApp account. And another one just came in that Roblox, uh, this is from New York Times. It says Roblox's effort to engage an older audience, because it's mainly used by kids, while maintaining a safe environment for its youngest users, offer a roadmap for other internet platforms. And that indeed is an interesting challenge. How do you they they're predominantly a kids platform? How do you let the adults in and keep the bad actors out? Well, you gotta have identity verification, would be a, a starting point, perhaps. Um Okay, so now we went through the big boring headlines that your cousins and coworkers will be harassing you about at the next family barbecue in a month from now. And now we get to get into the really juicy fun tweets that everyone's twatting on Twitter since we, we last met nine hours ago, like the one I was reading before that the NSA, the DHS, uh, say that Black Matter, a ransomware threat to the food industry, demands $15 million in a mix of Bitcoin and Monero. Uh, And this is another example of Russian-backed cyber attackers who previously used to work inside of Russian soil, who Joe Biden met, uh, which is why Joe Biden had an emergency meeting with Vladimir Putin in Geneva about two months ago and told him, you better knock that shit off. Here are 16 things you cannot touch. If you do, we will retaliate and specifically target your Nord Stream 2 natural gas pipeline that is the bulk of your revenue that you sell to Europe. And you wouldn't you wouldn't like us to kill that pipeline, would you, big big daddy Vladdy? You wouldn't like that, would you? No, you wouldn't. And Vladdy said, "No, that would be terrible." His exact words, right? So don't fuck with our stuff, right? And if it's happening from inside Russia, knock that nonsense off. Got it? Are we clear? Yeah, we're clear. Okay, great. So a week later, the Russian hacking outfit, our evil, mysteriously shuts down disappears from the internet. Gee, I wonder what happens next. As I said, the day that we read that headline that our evil disappeared from the internet, I said, watch, two weeks from now, they're going to reappear in Ukraine. Two weeks later, we read a headline. Oh, there's a new ransomware gang based out of Ukraine called Darkseid. Gee, I wonder who that could be. And now Darkseid is now attacking our food infrastructure, just like they used to attack our the JT uh, food the big meat producer, the, the one of the world's biggest meat producers and the U.S.'s biggest meat producer that they attacked when they were previously known as, uh, you know, a different ransomware gang when they were on Russian soil. But Vladdy, Big Daddy Vladdy told them, hey, guys, 
uh, you got to move this shit out of our soil so that we can have plausible deniability and yet still meddle in, uh, you know, cyber terrorism because they're trying to attack our key infrastructure, food, energy and water. And that's what we've been reading those headlines the past multiple times over the past week, Spe- specifically those things, specifically the same things I keep telling everybody to make sure they have under their own control, because now that they are controlled by by techn- technical means, right? The, these There's technical systems that control the food uh, systems and energy systems and water systems. They can be hacked. And that's what they're aiming for. And we even know they're aiming for them. And we're even try- proactively trying to take steps against it. But winter's coming. And oh boy, is that going to, you think it's bad, you know, when they did shut down the colonial pipeline on the whole West Coast and all the cars had to line up and it was all tragic. Imagine if that had happened during February. And when, you know, imagine uh, an energy shortage turns off in Chicago in January. Good times. So. Uh, it's going to get really interesting. And as, some, as somebody said, it is the beginnings of cyber warfare. And that's why Joe Biden brought together 30 countries on Wednesday last week for an unprecedented move by any president ever specifically to address this because we know it's coming this winter. And, and oh, by the way, of those 30 countries, Russia and China wasn't invited. Gee, I wonder why. So. Start taking care of your water, food, and energy real quick, like, because when it's working, when the water's working, when the food's working, your entire life, your parents' life, your grandparents' life, and their parents' life, for your full known history, the water's always worked, the food's always worked, the energy's always worked. It's and meant in some countries, it's no longer working. China itself doesn't have energy in about half of China at the moment, the lights are off. They're using fucking candles. Tyler, I think this is the time where people need to start getting creative and get more innovative. Um, like even start digging wells and start using solar energy. Well, to, to finish this point, Russia and China both know what happens when a population no longer has food at the supermarkets. They've gone through that. That's right. They become savages. They become very distrusting of the government they used to trust in. They, they get very anxious. They start hoarding. And things go from ubiquitous and on demand to non-existent and hoarding. And you saw a glimpse of this with toilet paper during COVID. People, as soon as it becomes unavailable, it becomes incredibly valuable. And everyone starts hoarding. And that's bad when it's toilet paper, but it's even worse when it's water, food, or energy. So, get ready. The North remembers. <laughs> and so does China and Russia. They know how, tra- you know, America's never had to face that before. We've, they, Americans uh, and the American government's never had to deal with a population who has lost fundamental trust in the ability. When the government can't provide uh, health, efficient, affordable health care, that's a problem. It's not fucking the most urgent, critical thing in the world. And and maybe they they're not the best at providing free education, but that's not this isn't that that ain't what you can go a lifetime without education and and essentially a lifetime without healthcare. You can go uh, a, several days without food. You can go 
very few days without water. We're going to test that theory, Tyler. I no longer drink water. <laughs> I definitely want to test your genes after this. So get ready. Here here comes cyber warfare, uh, perhaps as soon as this one. I mean, they're already dabbling in it. We just read headlines last week that they've been attacking our water supply and the, the agencies have not been alerting the public for fear of alarming them. And they named the plants and the dates when it happened. And they're escalating. And now today, the headline today is they just attacked two of America's biggest critical food suppliers. So next up from Sharok, The Guardian, Facebook must prioritize children's well-being. Yes. Sorry, um, do you plan to stream the Google event? If not, yes. Cammy will open the AI room in five minutes. Yeah, you, so we can do both simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah, Cammy, up to you. Sounds good. Okay. Um, I think I'll continue with the AI room. I have a number of great headlines ready. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, the Google live stream event starts in thirty minutes for the Google Pixel Six. So the Guardian just wrote a headline, which says, um couple newbies with their hands up. Welcome Peggy Sue and Ty Bowie. I hope I pronounced that right. The Guardian headline reads, Facebook must prioritize children's well-being. Zuckerberg is told. UK campaigners write to chief executive Mark Zuckerberg with a list of demands to ensure online safety for young people. Now, that implies that they think Facebook is unsafe for kids. Now, where, what facts, what data do they have to base that assumption on? I would argue they're likely responding to the Wall Street Journal's headlines from a week and a half ago from Frances Hogg and the Whistleblower, where she shared the document of the chart that we were debating in hotly in this room when we opened the room two hours ago where although the Wall Street Journal wrote the headline that Facebook is toxic for young women. That was the headline they wrote. Facebook is toxic for, knows that it is knowingly toxic to young women. That's the narrative. That's the framing that they posited. And now people are absorbed that, didn't read Facebook's rebuttal saying that's hogwash. Here's the slide where they stole that data point from. And because not only did the Wall Street Journal run with that headline that Facebook is knowingly toxic for young, its young users, so did their friends over at the New York Times and the Washington Post and Vice all jumped on that gravy train and that dog pile and the hyenas all got together as a whole bunch of journalistic jackals and on their journalistic jihad and they took down the infidels and they're attacking Facebook and now you've got misinformed people, intentionally misinformed by the Wall Street Journal, now writing letters to Mark Zuckerberg with a list of demands. UK campaigners write, write to Mark Zuckerberg with a list of demands to ensure online safety for young people. Okay, are you researchers? Did you do research? Did you, you have some evidence that Facebook is not on, safe for young users? Where are you getting your information from, son? And this is precisely what the Wall Street Journal 
intended to enable. It's a jihad. Watch how this article plays out. Facebook has lost the trust of parents. And this is The Guardian, again, playing along with their journalistic friends at the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, jumping on the dog, adding more gas to the dumpster fire of misinformation. So watch what The Guardian does here. Facebook has lost the trust of parents. That The Guardian says, okay, according to what, what statistic? No, there is, there is no data. There is no link to some chart. It just says it as it's a matter of fact with no link to any source. So how do, how do you do that? You're a publication. You're not a research institution. You're not a think tank. What is that based on? Because you're a journalist and you don't like Facebook? You can write that as the opening line of your story. Facebook has lost the trust of parents, is prioritizing commercial gain over children's needs, and must take steps to restore faith in its platforms. A global alliance of children protection campaigners has warned Mark Zuckerberg. Huh? A global alliance of child protection campaigners based on what? Based on what data? Based on what research? Based on what information? The Facebook founder and chief executive is urged to publish its internal assessments, its own research of the risks young people face on its services in a letter with 59 signatories. Oh, so there's 59 signatures telling Facebook to release its own research and data, which the people signing this assume will support their claims assumptions, assertions that Facebook's harming children. Hey, we think you're harming children. Release the data that shows that we think what we think we we know. Huh? What are you talking about? So Facebook has, and then here's the quote from them. The company must do significantly better to regain the trust of parents and child protection professionals, and most importantly, to ensure its product decisions contribute to contribute to rather than compromise children's safety and well-being, says the letter. Zuckerberg is urged to take the following five steps to address concerns over its approach to protecting. It must share all its internal research on the impact its platforms have on children's well-being. It must set out what research has been conducted on how the company's services contribute to child sex abuse. It must publish risk assessments of how its platforms affect children, and it must provide details of an internal reputation review of its product, and it must review the child protection implications of encrypted messaging. The letter has been sent to Zuckerberg in the wake of revelations from Facebook whistleblower Francis Hogan, who has accused the company of lax approach to safety in testimony to U.S. senators and a number of document leaks that formed the backbone of a series of articles in the Wall Street Journal. One of the most damaging leaks was internal research at Instagram showing the app's impact on teen well-being, including one slide showing 30% of teen girls felt Instagram made dissatisfaction with their body worse. Kudos to uh, The Guardian for actually kind of well articulating the nuance of that. Shame on them for not mentioning the other 24 data points in that same graph that counter that that exact narrative. Echoing Hagen's claims that the company puts profit before people, the group again, so they're now they're they're echoing the whistleblower, the misinformed whistleblower, essentially. Or I should say the whistleblower who's not being very careful with 
the, the sort of misinformation that's, well, it's not even her. It's the Wall Street Journal's letters based on her whistleblowing that is then intentionally misinforming people, which is now forcing them to write crazy crackpot letters to Mark Zuckerberg, forcing demanding that he do these ridiculous actions. Based on information they have none of. Based on pure, wild, cockamamie assumptions because they read a, a journalistic jihad piece by the Wall Street Journal. A spokesperson for Facebook has responded. We're committed to keeping young people who use our platform safe. We've spent $13 billion on safety in recent years, including developing tools to enhance safety and well-being of young people across Facebook and Instagram. We've shared more information with researchers and academics than any other platform, and we will find ways to allow external researchers more access to our data in a way that respects people's privacy. We're going to do what we've been doing for many years, spending billions of dollars, making sure users are safe, because God knows you're not going to stop your kid from sitting on their phone at the restaurant. We know you aren't going to actually going to be a good parent and start, you know, telling them to put their phone down during dinner. We know you're going to let them consume whatever it is they're consuming endlessly all night and day, all hours of the night even when friends are visiting, even when they should be outside playing. We know you're a, you're a derelict parent. So we're gonna actually going to do a lot of research with reputable folks internally. We're not going to share that shit with you. It ain't got nothing to do. We don't need to do that. That's not going to help the scenario. We're gonna, it's our company. It's our money. Thank you. You're a derelict parent. Your kid's clicking on ads. We get that money. We do the research so that your kid keeps clicking on ads you never mind it. You just keep, you know, go have your Chardonnay and chat with your friends over in the park and let your kid, you know, by the way, your kid's on TikTok, by the way, your kid isn't even on Facebook. Exactly. A spokesperson. So it says the letter was sent as hearings resumed into the UK's draft online safety bill. Here's a quote. Attention is what these platforms sell. They sell advertising. So this is their business model to engage users and they have to build algorithms to do that. And certain types of harmful content are just more engaging. Yeah. If you don't like it, don't let your kid watch fucking Facebook all day. But let me tell you, they're not. Kids are not on Facebook. They're on TikTok. But you're so bad of a Tyler. you're so bad of a parent, you don't even know that. Tyler, one of my um neighborhood friends posted on Facebook. And this is why I feel like I can, and it wasn't in like a private group or anything. It was just out there on Facebook that her 13 year old daughter negotiated a $1,200 deal with her dad to delete and stop all use of TikTok. And there was like a whole terms and conditions thing that she posted there. And while I think, you know, there's a certain level of absurdity there. Like I, you know, I don't think we would ever do that as parents, but this string ended up being this entire back and forth of like the reasons why they as parents thought that this was an equitable and amicable way to partner with their kid who on her own was identifying harms associated with social media, but particularly TikTok. And they had asked a question about Facebook and she was like, nobody uses Facebook anymore. We're all on TikTok, but I'm done. <laughs> If you ask your kid what app they're using, they're on TikTok. 
all day. They're, they don't want to be on Facebook. They're not using Facebook. They think fa- Facebook is for grandma and grandpa. What about Snapchat? I think it's awesome they have that equitable um, negotiation that shows that they can talk and work on it together and, and come to a solution that they'll both enforce. But, awesome. but here's the crazy irony. The biggest meme in all of TikTok in recent days is destroy your fucking school. It's literally a challenge. Every school in the U.S., the principals are Google school destruction challenge, Google slap a teacher challenge, and you will see cities across America, uh, the, the principals pleading, please stop this insanity. You're destroying our schools. You're assaulting the teachers. TikTok is owned by the CCP. There's three board seats. They have one of them. They are actually a financial investor. That was announced two months ago, publicly. South China Morning Post. China's an investor. TikTok is a nightmare. TikTok's going to be the biggest company. Tick- in a few hold years. on. I mean, hold, 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 hold the phone. TikTok's challenge several months ago was the Benadryl challenge. People died overdosing on Benadryl during the Benadryl challenge. How many kids are dying on Instagram? Wall Street Journal, where is your jihad against TikTok? Where kids are actually, you know, fucking dying. A disabled teacher was attacked by a student because of that challenge. On TikTok. TikTok. Where's your jihad against TikTok for slapping teachers? Tyler. Yes. Um, the sound... Uh, I DM you. Apparently, that sound is a bit offensive for Arabians. It's not. It's quite offensive. It's I, I don't know. There's a DM that it, that I forwarded to yeah, you. Some people can. If you're, you're welcome to feel offended by that sound. That sound can mean can mean the same as a laugh could be offensive to somebody. So, the point is. But Tyler, look at the look at the rye powder thing on TikTok. Have you been looking at this, where kids are taking a like a spoonful of dry powder and convulsing? It's a real, another tra- a wonderful trend on TikTok. It's digital opium. Oh, guys. oh, I see. This, but this is digital opium. It's Facebook, that's the problem. Even though the kids are all on TikTok doing the Benadryl challenge, the Tide Pod challenge, the, you know, eating laundry detergent challenge, the milk crate challenge where people are ending up in emergency rooms for breaking their fucking necks. Right. Punch your teacher challenge. Slap your teacher challenge where people are permanently being banned from schools. So they've ruined their lives prematurely and causing havoc at at schools. Right. Oh, right. Instagram's the problem. Exactly. Where's the jihad against TikTok? Silence. Nothing. Zero. Bubkiss. Does does TikTok share news stories? Do they monetize? Oh, content? Chris. Oh, shit. Oh, we got. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, oh. You mean Facebook is competing directly with the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and Vice, and all of the whole gang, and The Guardian for advertising dollars and winning and kicking their ass and taking away their traditional revenue stream of advertising is now going over to, the, to Facebook. And it's not going over to TikTok. And that's why it, they're chal- that now you know why the Wall Street Journal is on a jihad against Facebook and not TikTok. And that's why they're silent about TikTok, because they're doing commercial terrorism against their main competitor. 
and they've misinformed these sad individuals who are now writing pointless letters to Zuckerberg with faulty, faulty notions of demanding that he release all of these information and studies that they have inside of Facebook because we think you've got really bad shit going on inside of Facebook. You got to open your doors. You got to let us see all the, the bad shit you're doing. We think you've got Uyghurs in there inside of Facebook. Let them out. What? What are you talking about? Based on what what were you reading that is leading you to write cockamamie shit-brained letters to Mark Zuckerberg? You read the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Jihad Journal. But Tyler, here is my question. Even yourself, when the Wall Street Journal was coming like in a week, one after the other after the other, you were saying yourself that Facebook was having a problem because there was no, like they had a trust issue. We all yes. had the trust issue. So you yourself sure. were saying that yes. this was the accumulation of yes. the trust issue. I agree. So a lot of people have taken that in face value right. because of the Facebook trust issue and the repeated lies they have done so many times in years. So I think even yourself did it for a week until even they came back, maybe uh, after two weeks, after even those things happen so they did have uh, a starting point right i mean that that's why it took hold and it did have some kind of credence because of what they have been doing before yeah facebook ha- i think facebook. i think the point though is i think what tyler's going to drive at messy and I, I agree like right facebook did some nasty stuff right with the researchers banning them giving them yes a limited data holy sets, shit is that bad but, shit Yes. When when you look at the slides, right, 24 pieces of data, they highlighted the single negative part and took that and ran with it as far as they could go. And when you zoomed out at the data, when you looked at it objectively, you actually realized that had they framed it that two thirds of the users do not feel negative imaging from Instagram, there would be no story. But because whoever put together the slide said one-third do, which is one-third is less than two-thirds, correct? Yep. So that would mean a majority do not feel body image issues when they use Instagram. That's true. But because somebody framed the, the slide incorrectly, maybe thinking one-third is less than two-thirds, let's highlight one-third, they don't realize one-third of something bad is bad, right? And so that's, I think, what you're getting at, Tyler, is if they had journalistic integrity, correct. they would say, like, look, you know, this is the data we have. Right. Overall, it looks like Instagram's positive. However, we must address the negative body issues that arise because these are large problems. But they didn't get that way. They just took this story and it was salacious and run with it. Oh, my God. Instagram and Facebook are killing girls. And, and that's what Tyler's getting at. Right. And I don't, think under, what, I don't, I don't like the entity. Yeah. I don't like what's going but on. Me, I don't like what it's revealing about human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But journalistic integrity needs yeah, to yeah. come back. But to Messi has a great point. I have pointed out Facebook has huge trust issues, but not for the reasons that the Wall Street Journal is reporting. The trust issues with Facebook is when researchers are trying to do research on Facebook, namely the NYU Observatory team, they intentionally booted them out and restricted them from getting any data at all, and then lied about why they booted them out. They said, oh, we have to boot you out because the government agencies, the FTC says, we can't uh, sacrifice user data. 
And then 24 hours later, the FTC writes a public post saying, hey, Mark, that's bullshit. What this what this researcher is doing is totally illegal because the users themselves are sharing their personal Facebook data, the data that they generate on Facebook to those researchers knowingly. They knowingly are sharing that data with that researcher. We've got no problem with that. Leave our name out of your mouth. Don't use us as an excuse for not letting that researcher collect that data from those users who are knowingly sharing it with that researcher. And Facebook had no response to that. That's shady shit, y'all. That's really shady shit. Because then that researcher also found that Facebook was hiding because that researcher was specifically searching about political data, about the political advertising that was going on during the elections. And that's what got Facebook very nervous because she found out that Facebook intentionally removed a lot of the Facebook content that the January 6th Capitol Stormers put on Facebook. And they re- they hid all of that data. And she found that out, Absolutely. that they were intentionally hiding that data. And so she reached out to my buddy, Mark Scott at Politico, who's the tech journalist for Politico in Europe. And she said, hey, Mark, you know, I'm the researcher for NYU Observatory. Remember that they, I just got kicked out of Facebook? That was huge news 24 hours ago, right? Well, guess why they kicked me out? And I now I'm going to let you, I'm going to share whistleblow to you and let you know why they really kicked me out. Because I had just stumbled upon something incredibly embarrassing, which is Facebook was an accessory to the January 6th Capitol storming. And that's why they really didn't want me getting into the data. And they kicked me out right as I found that data. I've got the receipts, Mark. Why don't you go ahead and share it on Politico? So he did. And that's some double extra crazy shady shit. Hey, Tyler, can I just make a quick point on statistics? I think some people are looking at some things the wrong way. Just because 30% is a minority, this is not an election. 30% 30%, depending on what you're looking at could be very statistically significant. I guarantee you if it was a drug trial and 30% of the people died, they pulled the drug. So just because it's the, the minority, that doesn't mean that it's inconsequential, you know, so. I mean, Except I it, to it is totally, in, it's, it's utterly co- unconsequential because God bless NPR who came out with the piece about that s- saying, hey, headline, that Facebook survey that the Wall Street Journal is reporting about is utterly meaningless. We interviewed a professional psychologist researcher about how psychology research is done and here's her quote that facebook survey that ain't scientific that ain't data that's dog shit in terms of research that's a different issue no at all because as a journalist you're saying ah facebook's hurting girls no facebook had a data slide of unscientific survey that showed that 30 percent of the young girls said that instagram they think instagram's uh, having a negative cause on their body self-image, which that data is dog shit. So it doesn't matter what they think, what they said in response to that survey, because it's not scientific. So I, it, I agree. But, I'm, I'm but the, OK, OK. So did Wall Street Journal say, oh, Facebook did an unscientific survey that means nothing. And the result was this. No, they didn't do that. They said, ah, Facebook's Facebook is toxic to young girls, implying that the research is valid. Well, I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you on the Facebook issue at all. Somebody earlier just made a point about 30% as being less than, you know, the... the, the right, but it makes no difference so, because the data is I, I, dog I, I, shit. It, 
I'm just saying if you separate out the face, Facebook issue, we're not talking about Facebook. Just a way to look at statistics. Don't always assume because th- something shows up as 30% that it's not significant okay. or not important. But in this case, it's, it's not really relevant because it could be 100%. It wouldn't make any difference because it's not scientific. Right, right exactly. Okay. Right. But the point is, Wall Street Journal found a narrative totally unbased in any reality and ran with it without checking with Facebook about the context of what it means. It was provided by a whistleblower who doesn't even work at Instagram, who had no connection to that document that was made at Chipotle 10 minutes before it was delivered by somebody in Facebook who just had an idea. They just did a quick little survey on their own. They don't know. They didn't go to school for research. They're not a scientist. They're working in the marketing department at Facebook, and they thought it'd be fun to do a quick little survey of a a thousand users. And here's what we found. So this might be worth looking at. Well, you as a journalist aren't a researcher either. You can't interpret that data. And if you were a researcher, you would say, I can't report on this. This is dog shit research. means nothing. Or if you had contacted a researcher or you had contacted Facebook, you would realize you had no story at all. But you didn't do that because you're on a jihad. You're not doing journalism. You're on a jihad. You are intentionally trying to do corporate terrorism against your main competitor, which is Facebook, which you're not even transparent about. You're not even saying, oh, by the way, this company that we're doing journalistic terrorism against is our main competitor. So the next, how much longer? 10 more minutes till the Google live stream starts. The next one is Twitch had a do not ban list to keep big time streamers from being suspended. That's interesting. How did they find that out? Is there a a leaker whistleblower inside of Twitch? A list of protected streamers was discovered in the massive Twitch leak. Oh, that's how they found out. That occurred earlier this month. So for those who don't know, we covered this extensively. Twitch had a massive mother of all hacks where the entire source code of Twitch was leaked. All of their their user lists were leaked. Not only their user list, their earners list and how much their earners make was leaked. And it turns out 1% of the Twitch streamers make half the revenue in the Twitch ecosystem, much like America. So much like YouTube as well. What an interesting coincidence. It turns out the 1% top achievers earn half the revenue in America and YouTube and Twitch. That's something to think about all on its own. However, the new revelation today is that Twitch had a do not ban list to keep big time streamers from being suspended for doing anything dumb. A list of protected streamers was discovered in the massive Twitch leak that occurred earlier this month. Makes sense. They're the top earners. They're making 50% of the revenue of which Twitch gets a cut. Of course, they're not going to ban those people from their platforms unless they do something terribly egregious. By the way, it was revealed Facebook also had a similar list called the cross-check list, which their own oversight committee had no knowledge of. And then the oversight committee said, wait a minute, you created this oversight board specifically to police who gets to stay on and off the platform? We, the oversight board, were the ones who decided that Donald Trump could not be on the platform. And now you're now we just found out due to the and by the way, that was one of the more truly interesting revelations from the Francis Hogan whistleblowing files, which is that this black this white list rather exists in Facebook, that there was a whole bunch of folks who were not held uh, to be moderated inside the Facebook ecosystem. But I got news for you. 
Every platform does that shit. Every platform's got a, a special list of VIPs. I have a Dropbox account I haven't paid a penny for since I got it in 2007. Clubhouse has a whole bunch of friends of the founders and early team members who can do things that normal people wouldn't be able to do. There's people who come to my house who I'll let them use my shower, and I don't let everybody who comes in my house use my shower. This is called common sense. It applies to technologies as well. Just because it's a platform it isn't some magic Candyland Lego castle in the sky. These are normal people running these companies, and they apply the same logics that you use about who you would take to the airport and who you... Oh my God, this just in. Irvin... Irvin Booker on stage has certain people he'll take to the airport and other people he won't. Yeah, that's how it works. Same if you built a startup. You have a database. You give your friends special permissions in that database. How is, how is that surprising to people? Uh, it's, it's a little confusing, but it's just an extension of how human beings work generally. So the next headline is that uh, activists protesting against the Beijing Winter Olympics disrupt the flame lighting ceremony. The Olympic torch for the 2022 Winter Games was lit in Greece on Monday. That's today. Sorry. Well, yesterday ahead of the relay to Beijing. So the very first start starts in Greece because that's where the Olympics started. So they start the flat, the torch, and they run the torch from Greece all the way to wherever the Olympics is held. In this case, it's going to be the Winter Games in Beijing in 2022, starting in just a few months, like in February, for the Winter Games. And now there were activists protesting at the uh, Olympic flame lighting ceremony in Greece. By the way, get ready. You're going to see that headline a lot in the next few months. And this could get super crazy wild. And in fact, some experts have said, and I'll find the headlines, this could lead to hot conflict. This could be the triggering of all triggerings. Here's why. Beijing is very sensitive about the image of the Beijing games. They're investing an incredible amount of money, and they have for the even over a year. All the self-driving taxis that they have set up for everybody when they arrive, to showcase we have self-driving taxis in Beijing. That's ready. That's happening. Their central bank digital currency that they've been working on for a few years now that they've invested tremendously in, that is specifically being used for the Beijing Games. For all the international athletes and everyone who arrives, you're going to get Chinese digital currency to showcase we have this shit. Nobody else does. We've got self-driving taxis. Nobody else does. We are the world leaders. We've got our own digital currency. We've got our own self-driving taxis. Welcome to Beijing, everybody. We run the world, right? They're investing incredibly heavily into this whole Olympics. Every country does this when they get the Olympics. So Beijing's going uh, above and beyond even what uh, other countries would do. Now, because there's going to be a whole lot of people who are going to say, boycott the Beijing Games 
anybody who has anything to do with Tibet is going to say boycott the games. Anything with anyone to do with Taiwan is going to say boycott the games. Any people and the Uyghurs, they're doing genocide with the Uyghurs. You've got a whole lot of folks, even the Hong Kongers. Australia, don't forget about Australia. I don't, being mad. I, there's, the list is very long. You're going to have a whole lot of people. You had nearly every Hong Kong citizen protesting in Hong Kong while it was still legal to do so. And then China came in with the national security law, wiped that out. But you had the millions, there's only 7 million Hong Kongers, they had protests with 3 million people. Half the population were protesting. They made a human chain that covered the, uh, circumscribed the entire country. So, rest assured, you're going to see a whole lot of escalation of boycotting the Beijing games. And they're going to use Xinjiang and the Uyghurs as a main focal point of that. Now, American politicians are going to get roped into this in a very big way. You're going to see an unprecedented letter writings, phone callings, petitioning to American politicians to speak up and boycott the games, or we're not voting for you in the next election. Rest assured, they're going to get more phone calls and letters than they've ever gotten before on this issue. And it's going to force them to potentially say, you know what, uh, I'm here on the floor. Uh, I think we should boycott the Beijing games. And then what happens? There's a whole bunch of American and China is very well known to be very directly retaliatorial. So if, if a country boycotts the games, China stops doing all business with that country. If you know anything about China, and and LS certainly does, he can verify that's the modus operandi of how China does international corporate diplomacy. I even highlighted for you with Sweden, with Ericsson and and Huawei, where when Sweden banned Huawei, China retaliated by banning Ericsson. It's just the norm. That's just how it works. The Olympics, the Olympics, I mean, 1934 Olympics in history was a big deal, too. You know, that was uh, the rise of Germany and and we were watching. So anyway, this could get very hot very quickly if, by the way, here I'm going to predict for you right now how it's going to happen. The big American sponsors of the Olympic Games, you know, the Cokes, you know, the the big, massive American companies. Oh, you better believe they're going to get. Camp, they're going to have protests in front of their head, H, head headquarters, their HQs, saying, why are you sponsoring the genocide games? And then when Coke backs out of sponsoring the genocide games, what happens? Then China says no more Coke in China. Shit's going to get real. So just a preview, this little torch lighting protest in Greece, you've seen nothing yet. This is step one of the, of, a, of the novel. This is the opening paragraph. So just, just a little glimpse of what's to come. The next one from Bibi. Oh, we covered this. China and Russia sail through Japan in the middle of Japan, through Honshu and Sapporo Island. And Japan, speaking of Japan... Cheryl sends in a really interesting... Oh, the live stream starting now for Google. Google Pixel 6 live stream. Yep. It just started. So you go to... I'll tweet the YouTube video now. It just started. 
at the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW. Tyler, I must say, you've been on fire today. Yeah, and I appreciate that you didn't cave to the the PC police on the uh, on the um, sound effect that you use for the jihad. Yes, it's no big deal. <laughs> if somebody is offended by it, DM me. We'll discuss it. Yeah, Tyler, I will talk to you about that one. Go I got a couple of DMs about it. Sure. <laughs> So the very first example was this lady's walking her dog in Manhattan and she, the dog runs up to a Japanese guy and she says, hey, Google, help me speak Japanese. It's just a... Oh, the, it's a video, and they're walking into the brand new Google store, their very big first store in the Chelsea area of Manhattan. So it says Pixel Fall Event, and starting now, and it's a whole bunch of footage from inside of the Chelsea store in Manhattan. Here it goes. Glad you decided to join us today. I'm here in our beautiful Google store in the heart of New York City where we're going to show you a few new things we've been working on, some of them for quite a long time. Today, you're going to see real breakthroughs across many different technologies and teams at Google, all coming together to create a more helpful, personal smartphone experience for each person. We're doing what Google does, developing advanced technologies and taking on massive scale tech challenges, which in the end, are all about helping you out and making your day easier. For so many Google products, from search to Gmail to Google Photos, AI is the foundational technology that lets us deliver helpful experiences to each of our billions of users. AI is driving our vision for ambient computing as well. The idea that helpful technology should always be available whenever and wherever you need it. From a Google hardware perspective, everything we're doing is in pursuit of that vision. And the smartphone has a huge role to play. The phone is the most personal technology in people's lives. So it's only natural that your phone should be the central control device of an ambient system. Your phone needs to understand you and your world, your context, your unique needs and preferences, how you speak, and what you care about. That's what we set out to create with Pixel, the most personal, most helpful phone. A true Google phone, which takes all the helpfulness and intelligence of Google and adapts it to you. Now this approach has led to a lot of groundbreaking smartphone innovation over the years, from the Pixel camera, to the Google Assistant, to the speech and translation models we've pioneered. And we've always done a great job of tuning our software to get the best real-world performance out of Pixel's hardware. Now this year is quite a bit different. We have state-of-the-art hardware, which means Pixel can deliver even more impressive real-world performance, as well as new AI-driven experiences that have never been possible before. Oh, told you. Getting the 
most out of leading edge hardware and software and AI. The brains of our new Pixel lineup is Google Tensor, a mobile system on a chip that we designed specifically around our ambient computing vision and Google's work in AI. Tensor was years in the making. We worked closely with our AI researchers to create machine learning models that run well on Pixel. And we use those models to power all kinds of new experiences that you'll see today. With Tensor, we're connecting Google's AI breakthroughs directly to Pixel. So Hello, we can you. push the limits of helpfulness in a smartphone and turn it from a one-size-fits-all piece of hardware into a device that's intelligent enough to respect and accommodate the differences between each person. Now we can give you Google's best speech recognition in a smartphone. The speech models are trained to understand natural speaking patterns, accents, dialects, and how to translate them accurately into other languages. We've developed the most advanced smartphone camera ever. It intuitively understands how to get the best picture for you. Your life, your friends, your face and skin tone, as well as the nuance in the world around you. We can deliver our most helpful smartphone experience, one that understands and anticipates what you need when you need it. The phone experience is designed for inclusion at its core. We've taken real steps in hardware, software, and AI 